How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's a lion, it's a lion, it's a lion. I guess everyone's a title one good scare. Well, howdy. Welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them so that the next time you're caught up in a dirty movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Six Stringhorn. And I'm your other host, Justin, the bookworm bishop. That's the bookworm. Mm, That's what I get. And I'm worth $3,000 in four states. 75 offenses and no convictions. My name's Todd A. Davis, but uh, everyone calls me the Todd. I'm so damn fast, I can wake up at the crack of dawn, rob two banks, a train, and a stagecoach, shoot the tail feathers off a duck's ass at 300 feet, and still be back in bed with Tammy Bishop before you finish listening to part six of our series titled Sam Raimi, The Entertainer. Wow, I don't know why you had to throw shade at my mom like that. <laughs> Listen, Gary gets to make all the your mom jokes. I never get to make a your mom well, joke. We're, yeah, I mean. Justin, okay. you got the worst intro, but one of us clearly got the yeah. best intro, so you can yeah. tell who wrote those nicknames. Yeah, yeah, I get the fucking bookworm. Gary is Gary Six String Horn. That sounds cool. That's like well, it's Justin. Your your six your your six shooters are hidden in the book, so you actually oh. get to open the book and then draw your six shooters from the book. Cool. Okay. Sounds like a very slow way to draw your uh, your, your guns, <laughs> and it sounds like I would not last very long in a quick draw tournament. Hold on, fellas. <laughs> let me get my books out of my backpack here. <laughs> He unlatch this. You're, fake. you're taking them out. You're taking them out in the saloon before the contest even begins. You're you're hitting them. You're hitting so, them. And but then over. I've got to put them in my holster before the before the gunfight. That's the rule. Oh, okay. Okay. Can yeah. you can you picture Justin in the quick draw? Like and he like takes the book and he's like ah, and he like throws it off to the side, like hoping <laughs> they'll like look at it instead. It's it's, just it's a, like uh, a snake pliskin. Like nobody draws until this hits the ground, and he throws it and then draws and. Kills uh, everybody, and then the book hits the ground, and he goes, "Draw." Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. uh, also, Todd, you're you wrote that, but then you just gave your name as the Todd, which I know you're doing a, a play on the kid, but also that just makes me think of that character from Scrubs. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, everybody's gonna think of the Todd from Scrubs." Yeah. Uh, why not? Sure. <laughs> I, I'm likely. I'm very likely to run around in a speedo at some point. <laughs> Oh no! You couldn't run with like <laughs> the nerd or the Trekkie, the Trekker. There you go, Todd. I don't know, which, I don't know which one is more politically correct. Todd the Dork Davis. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, let's get on with it, guys. 
little bit of context here. So back in the early 90s, you guys, we're all about the same age, so we all probably remember this. We were maybe a little young to see some of these movies in theaters, but I'm sure you rented them on, on video at some point. But there was this moment in the early 90s when Westerns were kind of having a moment. They were having a renaissance of sorts, uh, thanks in large part to Kevin Costner's Dances with Wolves that came out in 1990 and Clint Eastwood's 1992 film Unforgiven, which won the Oscar for Best Picture that year. Oh. The following year saw the release of Tombstone, which was a huge hit, kind of an unexpected hit, and that helped to further repopularize the genre. Uh, and there were many, many other Westerns released during this time. Uh, I, I actually pulled up a list of them the other day on Letterboxd. I just like filtered the decade of the 90s and the genre to Western. I was like, there are, there's a lot of great uh, Western movies that came out in the 90s. But we're, we're talking movies like Richard Donner's Maverick, uh, Lawrence Kasdan's Wyatt Earp, also starring Kevin Costner. And then you had revisionist Westerns like Bad Girls, where the you know the, the outlaws are all women, or Posse, where it's all black guys. Uh, Posse is awesome, by the way. I rewatched that one not too long ago. And then there were even films set in the modern day, like uh, like City Slickers, City Slickers 2. Those were, you know, they're, they're modern movies, but they're also kind of Westerns. They've got kind of a Western bent to them. Now, most of these movies were released in the first half of the decade. And then towards the end of that cycle, came one of the most unique of the bunch. It was a film that teamed director Sam Raimi with star and producer Sharon Stone and a star-studded supporting cast. We are talking, of course, about The Quick and the Dead. This is my town! If you live to see the dawn, it's because I allow it. I decide who lives or who dies. In a town called Redemption, death is a way of life. Some fight for money. Some fight for glory. But one stranger has come here looking for something else. I now declare the quick draw competition open. She can play their game. She can beat their odds. But there's one thing she can't do. Why are you really here? You're no gunfighter. Forget the past. Some people deserve to die. The quick and the dead. In this town, you're either one or the other. The rules say I gotta tell you, we're about to spoil this here picture show. You got a problem with that? Scuttle your butt out of town. I want to start telling people to scuttle their butts out of town like that. Yeah. <laughs> Good way to, to tell someone to fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> Although it, it does, it does hold a little more weight if you are Gene Hackman saying it. Yeah. I yeah, would say exactly. so. I think it's a lot about how and who you are. Yeah. Uh, how you That's, say it, who you are. The, 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 Scuttle, scuttle, butt is not that threatening. No, no, <laughs> not more threatening than fuck off. No, <laughs> I, I see now. I want a, a video of Gene Hackman telling people to do mundane things, but it sounds so much cooler because it's Gene Hackman. I feel like that's most of his dialogue in this movie coming from anyone else just would not sound as cool. Yeah, <laughs> just yeah. really wouldn't. He just sells it. Uh, anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So uh, The Quick and the Dead, though, The Quick and the Dead presented a new challenge for Sam Raimi as a director, because this was the first film that he would direct that he didn't also have a hand in writing. Everything that we've discussed up to this point, he's either written or he's co-written with his usual crew of collaborators. But in the case of The Quick and the Dead, the screenplay was penned by a British writer named Simon Moore. 
So Simon Moore looked up this guy a little bit because uh, his name didn't really ring a bell for me. And he is probably best known as the writer of a 1989 six-part BBC miniseries about international drug trade called Traffic, which later became the basis of Steven Soderbergh's award-winning film Traffic, which was released in 2000, and a three-part miniseries that aired on the USA Network in 2004. Uh, Traffic, the the original Traffic, had been hugely successful for more. Uh, It was nominated for six BAFTA awards, which is kind of the British equivalent of the Academy Awards, uh, and it won three of those. Despite the success of that miniseries, however, when Moore decided to write a Western in the early 90s, this is just a couple of years after Traffic, so we still kind of you'd think he'd be kind of riding high on that, uh, but he writes a screenplay and nobody cares. Nobody's interested in it at all. Damn. And he wrote the script for The Quick and the Dead as kind of an intentional homage to spaghetti westerns, uh, particularly the Man With No Name films that Sergio Leone made with Clint Eastwood, you know, Fistful of Dollars, Quick, uh, the, uh, what, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. But whereas traditional American westerns had a tendency to be more classical in style, these spaghetti westerns often whittled the genre down to its most basic aspects. And it, they also all, almost always showcased a more daring visual style than what you were seeing in American films. Yeah, it's kind of weird that Hollywood is in. It's kind of weird what they're into at a, at any given point. There's actually a pretty concise article that I found from Game Rant uh, talking about this very thing, where you know you actually used to be able to kind of plan your entire year. It's like you knew you were going to see some shitty movies January through March. Uh, all your action and your big blockbusters were in the summer. Horror stuff was, you know, in and around October. And then your Oscar bait was there at the end of the year around the holidays. But right. also in terms of content, basically the MCU is the trend right now. It's kind of kind of has been for like the last decade. Uh, one thing that the article pointed out was the idea of, you know, this trend of like 80s nostalgia uh, citing the show Stranger Things shining a light on like the coming of age themes. Uh, there are a lot of John Hughes and Spielberg stuff. Also action pieces like Predator and Robocop getting more recent remakes and reboots. Uh, but the Westerns, like Justin said at the top of the show, were really hot thing for a moment in the 90s. Yeah, it's really interesting how, you know, Hollywood goes through cycles and Mm-hmm. For a long time, Westerns were seen as not profitable, old fashioned. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, even we won't get into the history of spaghetti Westerns, but, but but what those spaghetti Westerns were originally doing, the Italian ones, is they were kind of playing with the tropes of the American Westerns that had come out, you know, back in the 50s, uh, 50s and 60s and kind of turning them on their head. And then what happened is America saw this, Hollywood saw this and used a lot of the techniques from spaghetti westerns for their own westerns going forward so it's kind of like spaghetti westerns pulled from old hollywood and then new hollywood pulled from those spaghetti westerns when they started making more of them uh but but not not like in that like that that visual style necessarily like sergio leone movies have a very distinct visual style that is instantly recognizable i mean most of these spaghetti westerns do but sergio leone is obviously the most famous example of that uh, so you're not necessarily necessarily seeing that in a lot of these later Westerns, these revisionist Westerns, uh, but you do see it in some, and I think this one, as we'll get into, is probably the most obvious example of that. So Moore, talking about his concept for the screenplay, would later say, in pretty much everything I've 
ever done. There's a mixture of a conventional idea, if you like, and something that comes out of left field. And that's what gives me energy. I love action films, but I'm not very interested in the door busting open and some super strong male hero coming in, killing everybody. He didn't want to do what you'd seen a million times before in Westerns. So he decided that he would flip that, that kind of silent cowboy trope on its head and he'd make his hero a female which had never really been seen before at this point uh, mm. not a major film and about this idea he would go on to say when you introduce women into that kind of world something very interesting happens and you have an interesting dynamic straight away and so i wondered if you could have the woman with no name that was the central idea for me and that, in the honestly that concept would make a really cool title the woman <laughs> like with no name yeah the woman with no name that's yeah. kind, that's kind of badass yeah, I almost wish they hadn't given her a name in this and she'd only been known as the lady, the lady instead yeah. of Ellen, uh, because even I mean, granted, in those in those Clint Eastwood movies, his character has a name in all of them. Uh, right, his character right. has a different name in each one of them, but his character has a name in all of them. So it's mm -hmm. it's kind of a misnomer there. And in a lot of these spaghetti westerns, these Sergio Leone movies, the heroes are given like a backstory that involves tragedy and guilt. Usually it's something stemming from their childhood, some kind of traumatic event in their childhood that turned them into the person that we see in the film. And when he wrote the backstory for his hero, he kind of kept with that tradition. Yeah. Uh, so it had been a long time since I'd seen this, but can we just all agree that probably this is the most fucked up backstory it, it truly someone. is pretty, i was just because yeah. even as i was sitting there watching it was just kind of like oh okay yeah uh you know gene hackman's character comes in kills her dad so she's out for revenge but it's so much deeper and so much darker than that really <laughs> he basically for, like, forces her into shooting her own dad and murdering yeah, her own dad. I was, it is fucked up and like i said like i'd seen this before but it had been years so i had completely forgot that element and when i saw it again i was just like oh fuck like yeah holy crap this is dark <laughs> yeah i i had forgotten about that i had for honestly forgotten about a lot of the plot of this mm. not that there is a, a a very complex plot but what stuck with me year over the years thinking about this film was always its visual style you know right. it was the the wacky angles the uh Certain shots like the the light shining through Gene Hackman, you know, that's a classic one. And, yeah. Uh, and the, the shot of the the Marshall's badge in the ground where we're shooting up from the ground, like things like that stuck with me. So I so watching this really, other than those moments that I remembered as I was watching them, it really felt like I was watching this for the first time because it's probably been 20 years since I saw yeah. this movie. And it's and it throws you because if you go into this knowing, oh, it's Sam Raimi, it's a lot of big stars it's a western it's going to be a lot of fun when that moment comes where young ellen is pointing the gun at her dad you're like oh my god what are we yeah. watching and she doesn't yeah. say groovy afterwards <laughs> <laughs> yeah well once he had completed his script Moore went about trying to find out how he would get this story in front of cameras his initial idea was to simply do it himself see Moore, uh, in addition to being a screenwriter also had a history as a director of low budget independent films uh, around the time that he was working on the quick and the dead screenplay he had just written and directed one of those independent films uh, an erotic thriller called under suspicion which starred uh, liam neeson and uh, laura san giacomo who uh I don't know. You might recognize her. She was in that show, Just Shoot Me, but she was also probably best well known for her role in Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape. She plays the lead in that. Okay. And he had planned on doing the same with this script. 
uh, getting a small bit of funding and then shooting the film in Spain, which is where those old spaghetti Westerns were often filmed because of the landscape's resemblance to the American West. And he sends his script out to a bunch of studios, hoping that one of them would agree to fund the shoot. But despite only wanting a budget of like three or four million dollars, all of the studios, including Columbia Pictures, ended up passing on it. And the project stalled even as the Western started to become popular uh, and a lucrative commodity in Hollywood again. It's because then, studios are slow. Yeah, well, they're <laughs> stubborn, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then one day in May of 1993, Moore returned home after dinner with friends, and he found a message from his agent on his answering machine saying, somebody wants to buy your script, and they're really serious, and they want to pay a lot of money for it. Some of our younger listeners might not know what an answering machine is. Todd, would you like to explain <laughs> what an answering, uh, an answering machine is? a Sort of like a voice recording device, specifically connected to your house phone, your landline. See, a landline is actually a phone that's connected. Uh, just Google it, kids. Google it. They recorded your, it's like your voicemail, but recorded on a small cassette tape. Now, when you say voice, now, is that, now, how do you, is that with like texting no, or how like actual, that... ta- actual talking? You talk to, I don't, I don't talk to people. But how do you know? But emojis? you're talking to a machine. How do you get the emojis though? You don't. You just have to like what? Yeah. You just... <laughs> is this like You're AI re- chat that records really it on a cassette now. tape. Now, what a cassette tape is. <laughs> <laughs> that joke's done. We're done. We're yep, done yep. with that joke, and, and we've lost all. Scene. We've lost all of our younger audience. They're like, all right, I'm done with these old farts. <laughs> Oh man, I've never owned a, an answering machine as an adult, so that I'm not that old. When I first went to college, I I had an answering machine, and I thought it was pretty sick because it was like digital, you know, like it didn't have a tape or oh, anything like that. It wow! Was, yeah. Did you ever have a, a pager? No, I never owned a pager. I never had one either. Didn't okay, didn't need one. Either. If anyone needed me, yeah. they knew to find me at the mall. In Sam Goody. Oh no! In Suncoast, you kidding? Suncoast. Oh, that was my next guess, man. <laughs> in Suncoast, Gadzooks or Hot Topic is where you would find me. I was at the brothel. <laughs> wow! As a sixteen-year-old, congratulations. Uh, I, was where my, I was in my crib. <laughs> oh, shut up, Todd! You're like two, you're like two years younger than us. <laughs> uh, okay, wait. Where were we? Answering machine. We got sidetracked. So he gets this this uh, message on his answering machine. And he gets obviously he gets very excited. He he didn't actually know which script was being referred to that his agent hadn't been specific. He just said, "Hey, somebody wants to buy your script," and he probably had a bunch of scripts that he had been sending out trying to sell. Uh, but at this point, it had been a while since he had sold a screenplay, and he was broke. So he was like, "Okay, I, well, let's sell it because any money is I need I need money right now." Mm. And then from that point on, things moved very very quickly. Uh, so they were headed into the weekend when he he got this message from his agent. And the studio, which was Columbia Pictures, which is, as I mentioned, one of the studios that had initially passed on the film, they were convinced that when the offices around Hollywood opened up on Monday morning, there was going to be a bidding war on the project. So they wanted the deal to be closed before the weekend was done so that nobody else could make a bid on this screenplay. So why did they have a change of heart? Why did they suddenly want this script so badly that they had just passed on? Well, it was because at some point while the script was circulating, it landed in the hands of one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, Sharon Stone. If you haven't listened to our Basic Instinct episode, a little backstory on Sharon Stone. See, that, that movie, Basic Instinct, was released in 1992, and it had made Stone an overnight sensation. She was 
considering quitting acting before that movie came out because she just wasn't getting a break and she was in her 30s at that point kind of saying like this is not working out she lands basic instinct it's a sensation she's a sensation she's an instant movie star but she hadn't really uh, made anything since basic instinct that had been particularly successful but despite that she was still very recognizable she was one of those people who was famous just for the fact that she was sharon stone regardless of what she was putting out mm-hmm. uh, and she still had that movie star power which also meant that she had a lot of clout she was also interested in stepping out not only as an actor but as a producer as well and was looking for the right project to help her do so uh, to go back for just one second here, because it, it, I think something like this happened with Shane Black, where it's like dead silent, calm waters. This screenplay is out there for folks, and then somebody gets a word about a bidding war, and it's the fastest, mm-hmm. it's the fastest conclusion and closing a deal you've ever seen. Yeah. I mean it's th- so funny to me how that happens. It's just like People like grind for so long to get something happening in Hollywood. And then one day you come back and there's an, there's a message on your machine going like, Hey, it's four 45 on Friday. We're trying to close this before the end of the weekend. Yeah. Like Hollywood's just <laughs> fucky like that. Like they, they, yeah. they get, uh, I don't know. Like I remember listening to the Nerdist podcast and like Chris Hardwick even talking about with podcasting that like, you know, how hard he tells the story. I mean, I won't go all into it, but like what they did to get Tom Hanks on the Nerdist podcast yeah. and like the effort they put in and then you finally got Tom Hanks and it was like, then it's just like the floodgates open just because right. Tom Hanks has done the podcast. All of a sudden they're getting like offer after yeah. offer to be like, Hey, we need to come on your podcast. This guy wants to be on your podcast. This is, you know, like just every star in the world is like, cause all they had to say was like, well, Tom Hanks has done it. And yeah. Then- <laughs> I mean, honestly, like yeah. to me, that's just a, that's just proof that like if you just work your ass off and yeah. if you I th- eventually somebody's going to notice yeah you know i mean i'm still waiting for the day when i get a call from spotify about our podcast wanting to sign us to a contract it hasn't happened like yet but 20 million dollars just uh, <laughs> you know it, it could happen <laughs> exclusive it's, it's possible we'll just keep working our asses off on this podcast until that day comes you could have us yeah, you could put course. us right next to joe do you need a, do you need like a anti anti vax movies only we could, we could, we could. <laughs> well, now we're never getting a Spotify deal. So oh, no. <laughs> they just shot us in the foot. No, I'm saying they got like Joe Rogan. That was what he was getting in trouble for is like some folks yeah, there true. talking about that stuff. So, like, he, but then Spotify is like, oh, fuck you. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. He makes us a lot of money. Yeah. Well, when the Quick and the Dead made its way to Sharon Stone, she read the script and she felt that it was the perfect vehicle for her to star in. It was really unlike anything she had appeared in before. And it was a sort of revisionist Western that she felt like it fit in with the current trend of what was popular in Hollywood, like we talked about. And Columbia Pictures agreed and they purchased the rights to the script. I read The Beauty of Living Twice by Sharon Stone. Ladies and gentlemen, Gary read a book and uh, so, <laughs> Terry, you read a lot of books. I know. <laughs> I actually, I actually have been reading a lot more. But so I threw this one in my list. So I know, I know a little something about Sharon Stone. So let me just say, this is what you need to know about her. She has the most famous vagina ever. Yeah, probably. <laughs> no. Uh, no, seriously, I want to give her credit because she's super smart. Like, it not like kind of quick. She's got an IQ of like 154 or something. Yeah. She's like a very gifted actress and super intelligent. Also seemingly very entrepreneurial. We know 
this now from like a lot of accolades that she's got. Uh, she's works like huge in charities and stuff. Um, I think even after this movie ends, like uh, there's a whole section about how like she stayed in Tucson or something to just like work at uh, soup kitchens and just like wow. spends all of her time there and then works at a HIV hospital for a while. And like, a, wow. but I've, I've grown to like her a lot more as we've done this show. Um, we've been lucky enough, like you, you kind of mentioned before that we hit some of the other stuff before with her. Like uh, we talked about her a lot in the Verhoeven series because of Basic Instinct and Total Recall where right, she yeah. kind of had a break there. So anyway, she's been nominated for awards and stuff now, but you go back and watch like old interviews with her and she very much knows that she can do Sharon Stone for as long as that works. But she's also very much of the attitude, like she straight up says in an interviews, if you want that Sharon Stone, you can go rent that Sharon Stone anytime you want to. I'm, I want to do different stuff, especially at this point in her career, because she's like at this point where she's got money and she's got pool. And she says, like, if people are fans of me as a person, they want me to subvert their expectations. They want me to do something different. I'm not basic instinct. So at this time, she was kind of taking charge of her career. She goes on to do like sliver uh after basic instinct, which she plays more of a victim role. In yeah, that, that was and- a, another her part of her. uh Joe Esterhouse double feature there because he wrote that one too. (laughs) But she tries to go in like taking like a different kind of role than she plays in Basic Instinct. That's honestly incredibly intelligent because a lot of actors do have, they'll get that one iconic role that's kind of a breakout for them, but then that's what they're associated with forever. I mean, and she will always be associated with Basic Instinct because it was such a huge hit, but to be uh, self-aware enough to know like I got to get out of this now before I only get cast in erotic thrillers for the rest of my life yeah I mean when she's uh she does like intersection and she plays like Richard Gere's aloof ex-wife the specialist uh, yeah well I was I was gonna get to that because she's like <laughs> none of this like this stuff was big Hollywood gold but instead of like changing her mind she moved right into like doing action I mean she did like I think during this like last action hero in there but i don't think that's her fault we talked no, about well last action <laughs> hero she's she's just got a cameo as her character from basic instinct yeah there you go so anyway she wanted to be she started to get this idea that she wanted to be more aggressive which she had a taste for like in the beginning uh because she had done some movies like she did like hard target with steven seagal and she'd worked with arnold before uh obviously and now and now she can kind of command things. hard target career. is hard target is not steven seagal hard target is uh Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, yeah. I'm th- well, that's going to come up later. But uh, no, what is it? Hard to Kill. Hard to Kill. Yeah. Steven Seagal. Mm-hmm. She's in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, But yeah, then she goes on and she does like The Specialist with St- Sly Stallone and mm-hmm. this film like all around about the same time. Not to mention that for her, this is like a whole escape. Uh, I mentioned all of that before, but like she talks about in her memoir that like getting out to the desert was liberating for her. This was mm-hmm. like uh, she describes a lot in her memoir, but she mentions a lot of stuff about how she was treated after basic instinct by people. Uh, she talks about how hard she worked in that movie, but then she got this sort of reputation like you were just talking about and this light that was on her. And she said, well, I mean, you know, like me still fucking joking about her vagina. In yeah, 2022. Yeah. She became uh, known as, Hey, that's the girl who showed her pussy in that movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she tells a bummer of a story about being at the Golden Globes after that movie. And when they're calling out the finalists, her name gets dropped and people fucking laughed at her uh, because she was just the vagina girl, basically. And mm. people fucking suck. But I mean, anyway, look, at, I mean, her performance, we, we, I mean, we did a whole episode on it, but her performance in that film is 
iconic. Like it is an incredible performance. Yeah. And, and so she's, she's now she's looking for something and this is big for her. And she loves, she talks about loving, like she's been a a horse, like into horses her whole life, loves Westerns. Clint Eastwood was one of her favorites. She called him like the ultimate cowboy. Uh, She loved those kind of movies. Now she's even getting into producing. So make no mistake. She's more than just the vagina scene of Basic Instinct. She's swinging big, meaty dick in Hollywood is what I'm trying to say. Is that sexist? I don't know. No, uh, I think I think that's empowering. Well, I mean, to, uh, to be honest, like going back to, uh, you know, she played the last action hero talking about someone's intelligence. She had enough foresight to say yes to her to playing parodies of her character, I think, more than Robert Patrick did with the T1 the T1000 like she as you know i mean she did basic instinct and the sequel but like she also did a lot of parodies of her character like smartly just knowing just having the foresight to know like oh this is an iconic thing let's play it up that's a very smart move as well i think yeah. uh she you can just tell really that this whole thing is like su- a super big deal for her too like this mm, is an idea mm-hmm. she's having like this is how this is how i'm gonna break away or like i mean it's it's mixed in with some of that other stuff but uh in her memoir she actually uh, a quote from her here though too talking about how this is not a joke for her quote getting a producer credit as an actress is often thought of in my business as a vanity deal meaning they pay you for the job but shut the fuck up and stay out of the way I won't accept a vanity deal. And I let them know that up front. That's illegal, I say. And I like to work within the law. And that gets a lot of silence and not a lot of joy out of the other end. And we'll talk (laughs) more as we go. But she uh, definitely is not going to get along with the studio in this movie. Yeah. (laughs) Well, when Columbia contacted Simon Moore about buying the script, they were playing their cards pretty close to their chest. They didn't tell him anything about Sharon Stone's involvement. Uh, and, and I don't I don't know why, but my my guess is that they probably thought he would have be he'd be able to use that as a bargaining chip, you know, like, oh, you got Sharon Stone involved. Well, maybe my price just went up, you know. Uh, yeah. and, they, and they weren't telling him who was going to direct the film either. Uh, so he was kind of bracing himself to find out that it was some old fart middle of the road director, you know, just some journeyman director who doesn't really have a vision. That's what he was kind of expecting them to tell him. So he was thrilled. Once he found out that Sam Raimi was going to helm it, because Moore had like like everyone else, it seems <laughs> we talk about it every episode. Moore had been a big fan of Sam Raimi's Evil Dead films. As far as how Raimi got involved, uh, that was actually Sharon Stone's doing. When she signed on to the project, she made it very clear to Columbia that there was only one person that she wanted directing the film, and that was Sam Raimi. Uh, she later told the L.A. Times. He was the only person on my list, and if Sam hadn't made this movie, I don't think I would have made it. It's the kind of picture I don't think just anybody could have made. And it seems like that seems like a weird choice that that Sharon Stone would put her foot down, saying, "Hey, the guy who directed the Evil Dead movies, I he's the only guy to make this western." <laughs> but she, like Moore, was also a big fan of those movies, particularly Army of Darkness. She loved Army of Darkness. And as she later told Bill Warren in his book, The Evil Dead Companion, she had been impressed with Raimi's growth as a director over the course of his career. She doubled stout on that in the memoir, too. She calls our boy Sam brilliant. She's going to butt heads with the studio a lot, like I said, during the making of the film. But surprisingly, I think not over this. Uh, Apparently, they gave her an actual list of directors to choose from, and she came back with her own list, which was literally just Sam Raimi. (laughs) And and the studio was into it, she says, especially after she said, you could probably get this guy for practically free. 
Yeah, I mean, he, I, I doubt that he was bringing in like huge pay paychecks compared to some of the other directors on their list. Yeah, right. and now we've only ever skimmed over this, I think. But Sam's like actually at this point too entering like he's he's producing a lot in the early nineties, and it'll be even bigger part of his life after this. We'll talk about that later. But around this time of Army of Darkness, uh, till now he executive produced on a movie called Easy Wheels, The Dead Next Door. All of these also you see like his buddies like Scott Spiegel, Brother Ted, yeah. et cetera. He did Lunatics, a love story in 1991, which actually stars Ted Raimi mm-hmm. and Bruce Campbell's in it. Uh, of course, we know he did the Dark Man sequels as a producer. Uh, and then probably his biggest was Hard Target with Jean-Claude Van Damme. And if you look at that cast, like Ted's there, our boy Arnold Fosloo from the Dark Man sequels. Yeah, he's the bad guy in it. Yeah, all of his pals are in it, and you'll see um, some of the new pals he makes that come along too in, in Hard Target. And from the stories I read, he was brought in on Hard Target to essentially co-direct that movie with John Woo, uh, right. who the studio was worried because they thought the language barrier would be too much for John Woo to overcome. So Sam Raimi was put on set full-time by the studio to oversee it and potentially jump in and take over uh, if they thought that Woo couldn't handle it. Um, Now to Raimi's side of things, I'm sure as a director, he didn't, he didn't want to step on Woo. So he says that he was mostly able to just be available and not run the show. But uh, another side note I thought was really cool was, uh, Kurt Russell was originally set to star in Hard Target, and I'm not sure what exactly happened there, but Jean-Claude Van Damme was brought in, who, like, right before this, was already working with Sam Raimi, and they were working on a movie uh, based on a script by Richard Stanley called Steel Donkeys. What? And and supposedly, it was, like, a really violent and gory movie. It's like Van Damme's uh, suppo- was supposed to be playing the leader of this gang that breaks into a bank in Amsterdam to steal some diamonds. And then the police show up and they surround the building to get these guys. But then to top it all off, they accidentally open this thing and let loose a shape-shifting demon that starts murdering all the gang and they're God trapped by it. the police on the outside. And uh, it's like some oh. World War II demon or something. Well, now I am angry. Because <laughs> yeah! Oh, it fell man, through, obviously. so cool. <laughs> So anyway, Jean Claude Van Damme written, Sam written by Richard Stanley. Target. Yeah, and it was written by Richard Stanley. That's fucking wild. Wow. <laughs> well, we, I mean, I I really want to do a John Woo series at some point on this show, so maybe we'll get more into that that uh, story down the line. I think we we were actually planning on a John Woo series early on on this this show, but a lot of his uh, Hong Kong stuff was very hard to find at the time. Like it, it, like even hard what is it like hard boiled and stuff like that was really hard to find so we we decided to but maybe one day we'll get to john woo because man he i I fucking love his movies i really do uh that's wild though man i I never thought we would have like i i i don't think i knew coming into this series that sam raimi was a the executive producer of hard target i don't think i oh i I definitely didn't and i didn't know until (laughs) researching for this one like how big of a role he had on hard yeah, target like i had no idea because i loved that movie as a kid but that was probably before i ever saw any of sam raimi's movies honestly yeah nice well, it sounds like if we do well if we do a hard target um that'd probably be a part of a different series but like it could also be like a supplement to this series <laughs> yeah well we'll wait till we do tom john woo so. yeah yeah it deserves it deserves it so for raimi the quick and the dead presented him with the opportunity to tackle a very different genre than he had been doing before and to hopefully escape the so-called ghetto of low budget exploitation horror films that he was in danger of getting stuck in. So kind of like what you're saying 
but Sharon Stone was very self-aware and, and very conscious of the fact that she could get typecast. I mean, Raimi was very much in the process of being typecast as a horror director. And as we've said time and time again in this series, he never set out to be a horror director. He just set out to be a filmmaker. So he's seeing this as like, hey, I can now make a Western and maybe not be the guy who just makes gory horror movies for the rest of my career. And with this film, he was taking a big leap into mainstream Hollywood filmmaking. Uh, of course, he had worked with studios in the past. He'd worked with the smallish embassy pictures uh, on Crime Wave, and he'd worked with Universal on both Darkman and Army of Darkness. But this time was a little different because he was working with huge stars for the first time, also working with the biggest budget that he had ever had, both of which come with a lot of expectations from a lot of people. And because this was a studio film, Raimi had to make some compromises on his end. Uh, for instance, his choice to supervise the special effects for The Quick and the Dead was Bill Mesa, the same guy who had done that on Darkman and Army of Darkness. But because this movie was being produced by Columbia and it was being released by Columbia's parent company, Sony Pictures, he had to work with the studio's in-house effects studio, which was Sony Imageworks. Similarly, the cinematographer for the film was someone that Raimi had never worked with before. Uh, the Quick and the Dead would be shot by Italian cinematographer Dante Pinotti, uh, who's probably best known for his work with Michael Mann, who he began working with. His first Michael Mann movie was on the Dino De Laurentiis produced Manhunter, uh, which we talked a little bit about on our last episode. He's also done a lot of work for Brett Ratner, including Brett Ratner's Red Dragon, which might make huh. him the only cinematographer to ever shoot the same exact story twice, but for two different filmmakers. <laughs> I wonder if Ratner knew that he did Manhunter when he hired him. I, um, I wonder if that's like a fun trivia thing. that, he Or like, if it's just yeah, a coincidence. Just, yeah, it's weird. <laughs> and Dante's just like, I'm not going to tell him I've already done this. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just need the paycheck. I just needed right. the paycheck. That's <laughs> I love uh, Justin's carefree Italian accent. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like Chris Pratt Mario. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I had, I had clicked away. Ju Justin, did you do the hand? Did you do the hand motion? I did. Too? You couldn't the see it. It was there yeah. on the screen. <laughs> I definitely did. <laughs> uh, while Raimi didn't have a lot of choices in these behind-the-scenes decisions, Sharon Stone had a little bit more sway. So when it came time to casting, she that's when she really kind of put her foot down on a couple of decisions. Uh, when it came time to cast the uh, the key role of Court the outlaw turned preacher who serves the film's, I'd say the secondary protagonist, she insisted on a little-known Australian actor named Russell Crowe. At this point in his career, Crowe had made several films in Australia. He had actually started to make a name for himself there in his home country. He had actually won an award for Best Supporting Actor at the Australian Film Institute Awards for his role in a film called Proof in 1991, and he followed that up a year later with an award for Best Actor for his role in Romper Stomper, which was probably his most well-known film from the pre-Hollywood period of his career. Have you guys seen Romper Stomper? Mm -mm. No, it's really good. He plays a skinhead in it. He is outstanding. It's a great film. In 1993, he made a film in Canada called For the Moment, but The Quick and the Dead would actually end up being his first American film production. Uh, it was actually the first of four American productions that he filmed uh, that were released in 1995. Another one of those was Virtuosity, which is a sci-fi movie that uh, co-starred Denzel Washington that I grew up loving as a teenager. And I have to imagine that it has not aged well 
just because mm-hmm. of it's about he he plays a virtual reality villain so you can imagine say uh, a, a, a cyber sounds, thriller sounds a lot like lawnmower man like yeah, the, it, yeah i don't yeah. know i've seen mark zuckerberg's metaverse and i feel like the graphics would probably still hold up compared to that <laughs> <laughs> did you ever watch virtuosity when you I, I don't remember anything dude i loved I that movie i loved it so yeah denzel plays a is like a cop or something and russell crowe plays this virtual character who comes into the real world uh and he's a serial killer <laughs> he's, yeah uh it's it's really dumb and fun and i love it so this was the first american movie that he would make the, that he would actually shoot was the quick and the dead but the studio did not want russell crowe in this role they wanted a bigger name and uh according to stone they went berserk at the idea but stone got her way in the end and Russell Crowe was cast in the role of court. It was the romper stomper skinhead and the fact that he was just like this dangerous, wicked dude that Sharon Stone saw and it sold her. She wanted to work with him and demanded it from the studio. She said, I, I think other people, you know, she he had to come in that audition, but she was kind of set that he was going to be the guy. And um, they told her that she was being, quote, absurd. They told her, uh, why do you want a foreign actor who you know from being a bald psychopath to be the fucking minister in a period piece in the old West. As I said, and they, and they even complain. They're like, we'll have to work extra hard to push this guy. Cause nobody knows who the hell he is. And we'll have to wait two weeks for him to even get here. I think at this point, after some of the stuff, they kind of stopped arguing with her so much. Uh, I think uh, Sam Raimi apparently backed her up on that decision too, for what it's worth uh, telling him that, that they were like, look at this guy. This is exactly what an American cowboy is. Yeah, this is that guy. Well, Crow's casting wasn't the only controversial choice. It's kind of hard to believe now since he is one of the biggest movie stars in the world and would become one just a couple of years later when he started a little film that you may have heard of on this show called Titanic. But the studio absolutely did not want Leonardo DiCaprio in the role of the kid, despite the fact that he was coming off back-to-back critically acclaimed performances in This Boy's Life and What's Eating Gilbert Grape. And do not do it, Todd. Do not do the Arnie voice. Oh, it's this, I think this is the second mention of it in in a few times in a while. I'm itching. I'm itching, man. But, hey. but back before the world evolved, Todd was super famous for doing Arnie. If you if you want to, to hear Todd's Arnie voice. He is available uh, for messages on Cameo. Uh, <laughs> that's not oh, true. Man, don't, that's don't not true, me. although maybe it should be. Don't tempt me. <laughs> I can be um, persuaded if someone were to become a Patreon of the Computer Resume podcast. Available uh, now wherever you get your podcasts. Stone was able to talk the studio into casting Leo reportedly by offering to pay DiCaprio's salary herself. Apparently, the studio was all in on fucking Matt, da- not fucking Matt David, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe she has a story in her, in her thing. She does not name names, but she says one of her directors at one point asked her to fuck a co star to have better oh. chemistry with them. Wow. And uh, she got in trouble. Uh, this is a, a side note, but she got in trouble, you know, during the Me Too thing, like where people were like, uh, Have you had a Me Too moment? And she laughed at the question but it was more like a scoff laugh like have i had have i not (laughs) has my whole career been this (laughs) but uh anyway but people thought she was like laughing at the idea of it or something but anyway no they were they were all in on matt damon who'd auditioned but according to stone in her book she says quote this kid named leonardo dicaprio was the only one who nailed the audition in my opinion he was the only one who came in and he cried, 
begging his father to love him as he died in that scene. And the other producers on set said, why an unknown, Sharon? Why are you always shooting yourself in the foot? The studio said, if I wanted him so much, I could pay him out of my own salary. So I did. Yeah. So there you go. You think those studio guys felt like a big old idiots come 1997? Probably. I don't know how you couldn't. <laughs> when he is the biggest movie star in the world. Do you sit yeah. around right now talking to other studio execs today in 2022 and you're like, yeah, Leo, I thought he was a piece of shit at one point. <laughs> he was going nowhere. Sharon Stoll, you're shooting yourself in the foot. This kid. This fucking kid. <laughs> well, the last but not least, cast in the final key role of the film's villain, John Harrod, was the legendary Gene Hackman. Uh, and seeing as yeah. how at this time in his career, Hackman was about uh, four decades into it. And during that time had received five Academy Award nominations, two of which he won, one of which I think was on uh, Unforgiven, if I'm not mm. mistaken. I think he won Best Supporting on that one. Uh, but I don't think we really need to explain who Gene Hackman is. Y'all know who Gene Hackman is, I, I hope. Uh, but uh, And also, we just don't have time. Uh, to go into Gene Hackman's 40-year career up until this point. So maybe if we ever do an episode on, I don't know, like the French Connection, we'll give you a rundown of Hackman's right. early career. We'll yeah. You'd know him if you saw him. Uh, but have you seen but, Superman? Yeah. Have you seen you the go. Royal Tenenbaums? Have you seen the French Connection? <laughs> have you seen The Conversation? Oh, man, The Conversation's so good. The way that uh, Sharon describes the story, he was like the first person she had in mind to cast. And another strictly because of of her. Like she said that when she was setting up everything with the studio. Uh, she, quote, thought Gene Hackman was one of the greatest actors alive. I asked the studio to offer him the lead. I also asked them to give him top billing. That was right at the start. They did not understand me, and they wouldn't ever. What could their argument against Gene Hackman possibly be? Like yeah. That I don't understand, because... Because he had, while they're developing this, he had just done Unforgiven. Like, Unforgiven had come out, and it was a huge hit. And like I said, he got award nominations for that. Uh, yeah. Like, what in another Western. So there's precedent. Like, what possibly could their argument against Gene Hackman be? Because he is one of the best actors that, like, literally of all time. One of the best actors of all time. And he proves it in this movie, I think. Yeah, I mean, oh, she doesn't sure. describe it like they pushed back on him like they did Crow they and just, DiCaprio. They just didn't quite understand why she was picking him. Yeah, and and just saying, like, give him top billing, give him whatever he wants, like, let's yeah. just get him in here. Yeah, let's get him. So those might be uh, what I'd consider the four main roles in the film. Uh, they're the four at the top of the movie's poster, you know. But if you look further down the cast list, you're going to see the names of some of the best character actors in Hollywood. I mean, I, I knew that this had a good cast. Uh, just based on the four leads, but I didn't remember a lot of the other people. Probably the last time I saw this movie, I didn't know who a lot of these other these other actors were. But watching it this time, like watching the credits roll by, the opening credits at the beginning, I'm like, this is fucking stacked. Like, this is an insane cast. One of the first names we see on screen in the opening credits, I didn't actually even put this in my notes, but uh, Tobin Bell. Is in there. Yeah. Jigsaw himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the movie. yeah I, I didn't see him in the notes, so I, I made sure to mention, don't forget cult hero Tobin Jigsaw Bell. Yeah. yeah. It's like Dog Kelly. Dog Kelly. Movie. He's the, the guy that Sharon Stone handcuffs to a, a wagon wheel at the very beginning of the movie. Looking looking exactly the same as he does now. Yeah. Like, I know a lot. Of, I mean, he kind of has that older look about him, but he is sure. another one of these guys who has not aged in like 30 years. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, you, exactly. you were waiting on him to come back into town. I'd be like, would you like to play a game? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Uh, another guy that I, I neglected to put in my notes that I, cause I rewatched this movie last night. I was like, Oh, I forgot to mention this guy. And it's Mark Boone jr. As oh, I, I got him too. Okay, <laughs> good, him. good. I didn't see him in the list either. And I was like, <laughs> he is definitely one of those guys that you know him. If you see him, he's not very recognizable in this. Cause Mark Boone jr. Is, uh, you know, him if you've seen, I guess Sons of Anarchy is his biggest thing. He plays Bobby on Sons of Anarchy. Well, we but, did. He's yeah. in. He's in uh, Batman. He's in Batman Begins. Begins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in Batman Begins. That. He's, he's in also Di- like Memento and stuff too. He's I in think. Memento. He plays the guy who works at the motel there. He's in Die Hard Two. He's in Too Fast, Too Furious. He's in a lot of stuff. You he's know, in this three hundred movies or so. He's in probably. seven. Uh, but yeah, he um he's not recognizable in this because you recognize him now. Look, he always looks like he looks in Sons of Anarchy. He's got long, curly gray hair big gray beard and in this he's got his head shaved and he's he doesn't have a beard at all and he's got fucking scars all over his face and a milky white eyes it's very unrecognizable he's uh, one yeah. uh while i was watching this that i wondered if there was some kind of inside joke on because they comment about five times in the movie about how bad he stinks <laughs> even after he <laughs> dies they're like i don't know if he smelled worse alive or dead or something like that as they're trying yeah. to uh, him off i'm like wow well, he's also got one of my favorite interactions in the movie is when he first shows up, he like throws a guy out out of the bar window or something. But he comes up to Sharon Stone and he says, "You're," he's like, he says something like, "You're pretty," and she just looks at him like deadpan, "You're not." And it's a great line. It's a great like <laughs> like badass hero moment for her. Very, you know, oh yeah, really yeah. good stuff. Uh, <laughs> we've also got Pat Hingle as Horace the bartender. So Pat Hingle was a close personal friend of Clint Eastwood's and he appears in a lot of Clint Eastwood movies but I think he's probably most widely known or at least his most widely seen performance is in the role of Commissioner Gordon in the Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher Batman films yeah yeah oh that's, that's your second that. ba- that's your second Batman uh reference in 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 uh in one film uh, uh, that's true yeah <laughs> different 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 franchises but yeah uh there's Robert's Blossom as Doc uh, not exactly a household name, but anyone who has seen Home Alone uh, will instantly recognize him as Old Man Marley. Yeah, uh, tried to hit a lot of people with shovels in this movie. It was not flying. So, yeah. <laughs> was Home Alone after this? this Home was... Alone was before this. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was going to say, mm-hmm. I feel like I remember was at, this was like his last, I think his last theatrical role like he passed away after this or yeah i think he passed away like not, not long after or at least he didn't do any movies i can't remember i did look that up but i forgot now it's great and, i'm professional yeah very good guy. <laughs> <laughs> and the role of a character that is called the swede i mean they say his real name gunson something i don't know but they call him the swede uh they cast an actor who is swedish named sven Ol. I'm not going to fuck up this name. I'm just going to say <laughs> sorry to my Swedish listeners here. Cause we actually, we actually, we actually have a decent amount of listeners in Sweden. That's really. Nice. Well, <laughs> and that's, and now they're Let gone. Say, we had a lot of listeners in Sweden. Swedish, <laughs> Swedish chef's rights are just the same as anybody else. Muppet rights are human rights. That's right. Uh, this guy, Sven Ol. Or Ole Sven Ole Thorson. So Thorson, his career is fascinating. He's a former bodybuilder and strongman competitor who had been named Denmark's strongest man in 1983. And he often appeared in films alongside Arnold Schwarzenegger. In fact, he, he actually, his first movie with Arnold was Conan the Barbarian. And 
Arnold apparently just brought a bunch of his, because that was Arnold's first, you know, that was before Terminator. That was kind of his first big role. And he just brought a bunch of his bodybuilding buddies to the set. So Thorson has a role, in, a pretty significant role in that. He's also, in fact, looking looking into his career, he is officially Arnold Schwarzenegger's most frequent co-star. Interesting. Yeah. He is in both of the Conan movies, Conan the Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer. He is in Red Sonja, Raw Deal, The Running Man, Predator. Did you say Red Sonja? Yeah, is that not how you say it? Isn't it Red Sonja? It's Sonja. Is it Sonja? Yeah. Did I I spell it wrong or am I pronouncing it wrong? No, you spelled it correctly, but yeah. That's how it's it's pronounced? Well, God damn it. (laughs) Are are you today years old when you learned that, Justin? I haven't seen that movie in 30 years, so. Oh, okay. All right, all right. Uh, Where was I? Raw Deal, The Running Man, Predator, Red Heat, Twins, Total Recall, Terminator 2, Last Action Hero, Eraser, Jingle All the Way, Batman and Robin, End of Days, and Collateral Damage. He's in all of these movies. What does he have on Arnold? (laughs) They're buddies. They're just friends. They're just friends. They like the, you know, they they do manly things in the gym. Like coming. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, Most of these he's credited as an actor. A lot of them are kind of smaller roles. Uh, But some of them he's credited as, he is credited as either a stunt man or a trainer. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess he was Arnold's training buddy, uh, uh, you know, when Arnold's working out in, be- in between scenes, I guess. And the same year, 1995, that, that, that The Quick and the Dead came out, Thorson is also in Kevin Smith's Mallrats. He plays uh, LaFours. He's that's yeah. the security guard with the funny little boater hat on, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then a few years later, he would appear in Gladiator as Tigrell of Gaul opposite Russell Crowe. Uh, and fun fact on that, he beat Lou Ferrigno for that part. Yeah, you don't so. know who LaFors is? They don't know who LaFors is. Only the most feared ball security guard in all the business. 460 collars, all convicted. I heard he's even got two kills. Holy shit. I never thought I'd see the day when two such highly reputable mischief makers, such as yourselves, douse their drawers at the sight of a mall security guard. Shit, bitch. We're going to bust up that stage like a high school kegger. We're going to outwit LaFour's X-Men style. Should I call you Logan Weapon X? Nah, bitch. Wolverine. Snickety, snickety, snoich. <laughs> I would uh, like to believe that you did that entirely from memory. Yeah, <laughs> I wish I did, but I looked it up. Uh, uh, he, uh, but by the way, this is a guy who is in Hard Target as well. So he he came over from Hard Target with okay. Sam Raby, I think. Well, we've also got Keith David as Sergeant Cantrell. Yes. Uh, Gary Sinise was cast in the small but critical role of the Marshal. Uh, Kevin Conway, you may remember him as the Barker and Toby Hooper's The Fun House. We talked about that one. He plays Dread, who's like the creepy pedophile guy uh, who gets shot in the dick, uh, as as all pedophiles should probably. Yeah. Uh, and Cinema Shock favorite Lance Hendrickson was cast as the flamboyant gunfighter Ace. Nice. Also in Hard Target, Lance yeah. Hendrickson. So. Uh, Lance Hendrickson had fun on this movie, man. Like reading his interviews about this, like he he was having a ball. He loved playing that character. And he hated his death. He, he hated the fact that he had to die in kind of an embarrassing uh, <laughs> a, a way that kind of demeaned him. But it fit the character, honestly. Uh, his wife also was apparently super turned on by his look in this movie. <laughs> was she? Really? Yeah, he said that she, he would like get back to the room and she'd be like, be still my heart. Look would you like me. an ace in the hole? Did you ever say that? <laughs> oh, ah, there it is. And that's all the time we have on Cinema Shock. <laughs> <laughs> 
well, anyway, I don't know that any of these folks were on Star Trek, although with a cast this size, I have to imagine there's at least somebody in there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was kind of, before I get into it, I was really kind of disappointed. I really thought and this might not be. I think I've looked him up once before and it disappoints me every time. Keith David why he isn't either an admiral or a klingon or something he that voice an, yes yeah, he, he was oh bored god. to be a starship captain or yeah something. he really yes. was oh my god I, and to be honest the best delivery of a single word in this entire movie how do you Cor- spell it correctly correctly <laughs> he's so good <laughs> nice he's so, so good, good. <laughs> well uh yes actually there is uh, a few people we're just going to mention uh the big one here right here is uh kevin conway uh as dread he was actually in star trek the next generation season six episode 23 rightful air that was in 1993 as Kelles. does he get shot in the dick on that one too he does not get shot in the dick <laughs> <laughs> That you know, that is one thing uh definitely lacking from the Star Trek franchise. Nobody gets a lot phased. of dick shots. Yeah, nobody gets phasered in the dick. <laughs> <laughs> and that's everybody in Star Trek. Oh, that's it. Just Kevin Conway. The yep, only cast Kevin member. Con- well, I've got one more, but I'm gonna save it for uh the opportune moment later. All right, All right. a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Well, at this point, it's obvious that this movie is moving further and further from the small, low-budget film that Simon Moore had originally envisioned. While the star-studded cast helped to guarantee that the film would be seen by more audiences, it also meant that the expectations from the studio were much higher. And so, as studios often do in these situations, Columbia started to fiddle with the screenplay. Uh, Or as Moore would later put it, as I understand it, I wish I had a good British accent I could use for his his uh his quotes here but i don't uh unless gary wants to do it i mean i can um i don't know what he sounds like exactly i should have looked him up as i understand it <laughs> one of the rules of hollywood is that the nearer you get to production the more anxious everybody gets there's really only one thing you can keep changing and that's a fucking script governor I think that was Australian. <laughs> that was your Russell Crowe impression, maybe. Like Cockney and Australian, yeah, like somewhere in between. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, so basically he's saying, yeah, they, they, you can't really start recasting or doing anything else at this point. You've already hired everyone, already started building sets. But you know what? That screenplay, we can just hit backspace on and we can start rewriting stuff if we need to. I mean, on one hand, you do kind of see why Columbia would get nervous about the film. Uh, this script had been pitched to them as a you know three or four million dollar production, and it had ballooned to a film with an estimated budget of about thirty five million dollars. Mm. And it was a film that had a lot of big stars, uh, all of whom had to be kept happy. You know, you got to keep your stars happy. You got to keep Sharon Stone happy because she's also one of the film's producers. Uh, and if she walks, the movie falls apart, and all this money you've invested is gone. Uh, you've got to keep Gene Hackman happy because he's Gene Hackman, and you kind of have to give him whatever he wants. Uh, so there's a lot of people to please on this and they also had a writer and a director who were fairly unproven in films of this scope i mean obviously sam raimi is what he's a decade and a half into his career at this point uh and Moore had written you know some some well-received stuff in the uk but none of them had ever done anything remotely close to what they're doing here so because of this the studio started pressuring raimi and Moore to open the film up a little bit to make it a little bit more like a conventional western one with more dialogue scenes and more traditional plot mechanics instead of what the movie is which is a series of gunfights and so Moore reluctantly started rewriting the script he didn't really want to change it because that's that was his concept to begin with like whittling the genre down to 
base elements. But he starts rewriting it, taking it further from the lean and mean genre film that he'd been trying to make. And he wrote draft after draft, hoping to please the studio and the stars, all of whom wanted like more dialogue for their characters. I need a, I need a scene that shows why I'm motivated to do this and blah, 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 all this actory stuff because they wanted their big showy moments, you know, and all of this he's doing while trying, trying his damnedest to keep the spirit of his original script intact as best he could. And then in the middle of all this rewriting process, Moore had a personal emergency. His girlfriend, who's back home in England, was undergoing major surgery, and he needed to be nearby to be with her to help take care of her. Uh, which And that meant he had to take a few days off of working on the film. He's not going to be able to sit down at his typewriter or word processor or whatever he's using and write on the movie. He's got to go be with his, with his partner. He told the studio, and they were seemingly very supportive. They told him, you know, that's fine. We understand you should go be with her. Uh, unfortunately, though, the support was just surface level, uh, a fact that Moore found out a few days later when he received a phone call saying that he had been fired from the film. Fuck you, Columbia. Yeah, what a bunch of pieces of shit. Isn't that a shit move? What an asshole move. Like, like my girlfriend just had to have like an appendectomy or whatever, and I'm going to go take care of her for a few days. I'll be back next week. And then while you're gone, you're fired. Yeah. This is a weird thing that the studio is doing, too. And I couldn't find anything about Stone talking much about this either, because she seemed like she knew what she was doing getting into this. Like, but I don't know if like somebody in there thought they were going to get, you know, what's upon a time of the West or, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly or something. Yeah, it's don't almost... see the value in like a, a cool slick, just like this is going to be remembered because of just how fun it is. Yeah, not every movie be... has to be like an Oscar, a movie that, that's gunning for the Oscars. Like sometimes you just want to make a movie that's fun. Right. And entertaining, and, you yeah. know, that makes audiences happy and want to buy tickets. So let's make that movie. Yeah. So with more gone, Universal brought in John Sales to rewrite the script. Now, John Sales, if you don't know that name, Sales was an acclaimed writer director who not long after this would actually receive an Academy Award nomination for his 1996 film Lone Star. Uh, kind of almost a revisionist Western in its, in its own right. Um, but he wrote and directed that one. But like many others, he had gotten a start in low-budget exploitation fare, working under Roger Corman. Obviously, hey. there's our course. Uh, we, we were waiting for a Roger Corman connection on the Sam Raimi series, and there, we just got it. Uh, he, we can't do a series without a Roger Corman <laughs> No, exactly, exactly. He had written Joe Dante's Piranha. He had written uh, Battle Beyond the Stars, which employed a young man named James Cameron. Early yes, uh, in his career, he wrote Alligator. He wrote The Howling for Joe Dante. He even wrote uh, E.T. back in his early days when it was still called Night Skies. He wrote the script for that back before it was as family-friendly as it would become. It was more of a scary movie. Uh, he had ooh. written the screenplay for that. And in addition to being a screenwriter, he was also a highly sought-after script doctor. So that's kind of nice. what they're bringing him on for, for, for this job. So they brought him in. Columbia brings him in. They want his task is to turn the quick and the dead into a more conventional Western. And here, I don't understand this reasoning from studios where, like, we're going to buy this script that was written specifically to be unconventional, to be a, a Western that doesn't doesn't behave like other Westerns, basically. And yeah. then we're going to go through months and years of development on it and work to turn it into something that is completely different than what the, the script that we paid for. Like I do yeah. not, under, I do not understand that reasoning in Hollywood. You see it all the time. It doesn't make any sense. So they hire I mean, him like understanding, like 
some stuff's gonna change as you sure, yeah, yeah. That's what development is. But completely changing spending the that much money yeah. <laughs> when you already spent money to buy the damn thing. Like, yeah, it's, it's wild. So John yeah. Sales writes his script, and I maybe it's good. I don't know. It's probably good. He's a good writer, but it's not it's not quite what they were looking for because the script that he turned in was this big monster that would have been like a two and a half hour epic which is not what they were trying to make <laughs> fuck you columbia todd's, todd's got it out for columbia <laughs> apparently <laughs> the, the studio let's say not the country or the city in south carolina although that that one is questionable Hon- no fuck honestly, columbia uh <laughs> honestly i love colombian food and south carolina's columbia is a great uh destination for stand-up comedy so yeah i have no problem with those but columbia yeah. pictures yeah fuck you guys is uh <laughs> columbia the one with the the white horse that jumps over the triangle yeah. no okay. that's tristar columbia has the lady kind of looks like oh, a yeah. of liberty holding oh, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. like okay. a torch all right yeah well at this point columbia is in a bit of a predicament uh, which honestly is their own fault. Uh, the shooting date was inching closer and closer and they don't have a script that they're really happy with. So about three weeks left before the film is scheduled to actually start shooting. Like there is no turning back. They called in another writer. Guess who that writer was? It was Simon Moore. They hired Simon Moore back to rewrite John Sayles rewrite. So reluctantly Moore agreed to come work on this. And when he did his new rewrite, he took out nearly everything that sales had written. Not like every single thing. He says that he left a couple things in, but most everything that John sales had put in there, he just took out. And by the time it was done, the script looked an awful lot like the one that he had originally sold, making the entire rewrite process in Moore's words, a completely fucking pointless exercise. (laughs) A completely fucking pointless exercise, ain't it? <laughs> uh, do you uh, think he got paid? How do we have twice? how do we have any fans uh, in other countries? Yeah, I don't know. I'm a, a piece of shit. So, <laughs> oh, we're we're doing we, this in jest. We know British people are classier than us. They are. Mm. That's true. Uh, <laughs> condolences on your loss in the World Cup yesterday, though. Oh yeah, oh, that's a bummer. Oh, yeah, yeah. So while all of this was going on, there's still additional pre-production happening on the film. Uh, and, uh, you know, while the script's being rewritten and rewritten and rewritten, uh, Sam Raimi's still doing his due diligence. And he brings in a guy named Thel Reed, who was known as the fastest gun alive. Uh, he brought this guy in to train his cast in the art of gunfighting. Now, Thel Reed, man, I went down a rabbit hole looking into this guy. He was He is an interesting character. Uh, he's a legend in his field. When he was a kid, he had been gifted a pair of Colt 45s by his father. <laughs> Apparently, these were very different times. Uh, and he started <laughs> practicing with them, telling his father that I'm going to make a living with these guns one day, which means one of two things. It means that either you're going to go shoot in Wild West shows or you're going to be a hired assassin. I don't yeah. know how else you're going to make <laughs> money with these uh, but before long, he began winning fast draw tournaments before he was even legally old enough to enter them. Jeez. And then a, uh, a guy named Gene Autry that you may have heard of became aware of Reed's reputation and took him under his wing. He took him along with him on his Wild West tour. Uh, Reed is still in his teens at this point. He's still a kid. And it wouldn't be long before he was teaching his quick draw techniques to folks in Hollywood, beginning with TV shows like Gunsmoke and Bonanza. And he turned this into a career where he was like, he was like the go-to gun guy, especially on Westerns in Hollywood. 
Uh, and he would become a firearms trainer and an armorer on numerous Hollywood productions. He's worked with like he's worked with Brad Pitt a lot, like a lot. I guess he's got a couple a couple of actors that he's worked with over and over and over again. I guess that they just enjoyed working with him. They trusted him. Russell Crowe mm-hmm. is actually one of them. He did. He was the armorer on um, what was that Russell Crowe movie that came out? Un- Unhinged came out a couple years ago. The Road Rage movie, uh, yeah. uh, really good movie by that the way. It's wild. It is wild. It's it's fun. So he turned this into a career, and at the time that he uh, was actually hired for The Quick and the Dead, he had just completed a job as a consultant on Tombstone, where he trained Michael Bean in the art of gunfighting. I mean, you remember how good Johnny Ringo is with a gun in that movie? That's Thel Reed training Michael Bean. Here's a not-so-fun fact about Thel Reed. He's the father of Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who was the head armorer on the film Rust. That's the one where Alec Baldwin's gun discharged a live round and killed uh, cinematographer uh, oh, Helena uh, Hutchins. Yeah, Helena Hutchins. I think is her name. Yeah, last yeah. year. Yeah, he. So his daughter, who is has a reputation, I guess, according to some of the stuff I've read about that, is being a little bit careless uh, as an armorer. Yeah, that, she she was the one responsible for that. So yeah, not not the best legacy, but he has a great reputation as an armorer, obviously because he's been doing it for like sixty years at this point listening to a couple of folks uh give interviews about that sort of things like it is nothing to mess around with like it safety is such a big issue you well, got, you're using real guns i mean yeah yeah <laughs> you're using, i mean these aren't, these aren't toy guns you're using yeah. real guns i mean we saw what happened on the crow like yeah and i mean it's you know and that's just one example like it's it's well brennan lee had that lee family curse so that's yeah 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 (laughs) if you haven't seen dragon the bruce lee story then there was like a demon there was a demon Mm, following him. there is a demon yeah that's a very accurate film Uh, during (laughs) pre-production ramey immersed himself in research on the era in which the film was set which is the year it's set in 1878 and he wanted it to be very specific so obviously no guns that are manufactured after 1878 and when he hired Thel Reed he was adamant that all of those guns be period accurate it's either a gun made you know that year or prior or guns that these people would carry uh so Reed goes out looking for actual guns he's not like they're not making like reproductions they're buying and using actual guns from that period and Thel Reed did this by uh he he would go searching people's private collections and occasionally even accessing his own personal collection of of firearms and then once the guns were chosen he had about three or four months to train the actors uh the actors would train like every single day they're training with these guns and and it shows I mean Russell Crowe that little that little trick that he does in the gun shop when they throw him the silver gun uh it is First of all, I love the way that Raimi shoots it, but like Russell Crowe clearly knows what he's doing in that scene. He makes it look effortless. So it's clear that yeah. he had put a lot of a lot of work into practicing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, so they're trained, they're training every day. And and training with these is not easy because again, these are not fake guns. And guns of at, at this time, pistols at this time, you couldn't ju- you didn't just pull the trigger. You had to cock the the hammer before yeah. firing. So when you're doing a quick draw, you're having to draw it fast enough. You're having to draw it out of your holster, then cock the hammer, then pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's incredibly difficult. So the actors would actually take the guns with them at, at, you know, at night without ammunition. Obviously, they're practicing without ammunition. Uh, they would take them back to their hotel rooms and practice like every evening after work. That's what they're doing. And Fel Reed, who's staying in the same hotel, he would like, you get a little knock on your door from, from Fel and he's checking on your progress to see how you're doing. Uh, one one little bit of uh, trivia I found from an interview with Thel Reed about this 
I, I thought was really cool. So you know the the shitty guns that Russell Crowe's character ends up buying from from the kid for five bucks. Yeah, they're all rusty and old looking. Mm-hmm. Those were actually like brand new, in brand new condition. Those guns when he got them, but he wanted them to look old and rusted. So Reed actually took them to his own swimming pool and threw them in the chlorine water and let them just sit there and rust. <laughs> that's how he got. <laughs> that's how he aged them up for the movie. Uh, nice. And you know, I go into all this detail about Thel Reed because one, it's interesting as hell, but also mm. in a film that is primarily about gunfighting, making sure your actors look like they know what they're doing is pretty essential. Yeah, uh, you know, and that sort of thing kind of goes back to, you know, listening to Joel Silver talking about the cast of The Matrix, you know, training for months and months and months before getting in front of the camera. And it makes and it makes a difference. It really does. Uh, same thing uh, with the wake scene in Road to Perdition, when you see that it that it really is Tom Hanks and Paul Newman sitting there playing the piano, that moment just lands yeah. better. And, you know, in film, you're trying to capture these moments and, you know, stuff like having Lawrence Fishburne and Keanu Reeves really throwing punches and kicks at each other. And then, you know, something as small and as, powerful as tom hanks and paul newman sitting there playing this piece instead of it clearly being somebody else doing it right right you know it just makes it just makes it uh they did the same thing with the outfits too uh sharon stone talks in her memoir about uh how her jacket was like legit made in that time period and was from a museum and that it weighed like a ton because it was built to withstand the elements so mm-hmm. like when you're in the rain in the old West, you're really in the rain. So they have like these thick ass, like leather jackets and uh, it had the split in the back for like horseback riding and stuff. Nice. Uh, yeah. Also the horses were real, not from the 1800s, but <laughs> no, they were, you know, they were incredibly old. I'm they sure it's magical, horse names. They're not magical horses. <laughs> well, I, I, I will. I Her horse say that... was magic. I was going to say too. Was it really? Oh. Yeah. And, uh, and she, 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 you know, I mentioned she was a horseback rider since she was a little girl. Uh, so she had no, you know, Bruce Campbell ass saddle battles uh, right. for her, but uh, but she bought that horse. She said she never ridden a finer horse than than Magic. So that was her horse after this movie. Nice. nice. Well, I, you know, speaking of the costumes, I I do think I mean, the costumes in this movie are pretty incredible. I mean, they look great, and Sharon Stone's look in particular, like she just looks like a badass. Like the way that mm-hmm. she she's dressed, like with that long duster and and the the way her hat sits on her head is just like made for her it's perfect and i guess we should mention the uh costume designer on this her name was judiana makovsky she's still working now i mean she does a lot of marvel stuff she recently did the guardians of the galaxy holiday special Uh, i think she's i think she's done all the guardians of the galaxy she did the winter soldier she's done a bunch of a bunch of marvel stuff too Uh, but she had done the the specialist with sharon stone right before this so that's likely how she got hired for this film if i were to guess So remember that when Moore had planned on directing the film himself, his idea was to shoot it in Spain, the location where all those spaghetti Westerns were shot because of its resemblance to the American West. Well, that's not what ended up happening with The Quick and the Dead. Instead, uh, it was actually filmed in the American West. There was no reason to film it anywhere (laughs) else, uh, even if it would have maybe been cheaper to film it overseas, as it often is. They're like, well, let's just go. Let's just go in our own backyard. So specifically, it was filmed in Arizona. The primary shooting locations were the town of Mezcal, Arizona, which is about 40 miles south of Tucson, and in old Tucson Studios, which is a western town 
just west of Tucson that doubles as a tourist attraction when it's not being used for a film. Um, nice. I've actually been to old Tucson uh, a couple of times as a kid. I, I, spent, I Yeah, I spent a lot of time in Arizona when I was a kid. We had friends out there. I would go out there for like a month at a time and spend a lot of time out there. And this was like when I was homeschooled or either I only homeschooled for a year or mm. I was on like summer vacation or whatever but oh. yeah, i spent a lot of time in tucson we had friends there and uh old tucson studios is cool as hell it is really? like yeah basically i mean it's a i don't want to call it a theme park or it's not a there's not rides or anything but i guess it is a theme park you go in and it's like you're it's in the middle of the desert it looks like you're walking into a old western town from a cowboy movie and oh, it's been fun. used since like i mean it was used on petticoat junction bonanza like it's been used for decades lots of old john wayne movies there uh, the the three amigos was shot like the spanish church and three amigos is there i've got a picture of me in front of it i almost nice. got bit by a rattlesnake there that was terrifying what <laughs> <laughs> this feels but, like uh what is it is it nope where there's the old west town or something yeah or, yeah but yeah. yeah but this is a little more it's more detailed than the one in Nope. Uh, it's but it's, it's it's kind of a similar concept to that. I mean, they, and they they would have like people dressed up in characters like cowboys, and then at certain times of the day, they'd have a duel out in the streets, and they'd be shooting you know, guns with blanks, and they would they would like play it out like you're in an actual western town. I don't know if wow. they still do that again. This was like in the late '80s, early '90s, late '80s, early '90s when I was a kid. Um, and part of the, the studio burned down years ago, but I think it has since been rebuilt. Anyway, if you're ever in around Tucson, go to old Tucson Studios. It's really neat. Nice. Watch out for the rattlesnakes. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, The Quick and the Dead shot from October of 1993 until February of 1994, which sounds like the perfect time to shoot in Arizona. Uh, I, you know, like I said, I spent a lot of time out there as a kid this time of year, October, uh, really pretty. I've been out there in January. It's gorgeous. Like the, you know, the temps hover in like the, the seventies, this is in lower Arizona. It gets colder up North around the grand Canyon, wow. but uh, it's very pleasant, you know, that time of year, nice. as opposed to like in the summer when it's 110 degrees. Right. But the weather did end up becoming an issue at times on this uh, specifically at one point in, in Arizona there, there was a rare snowstorm that hit the town of Mezcal. Uh, you don't see a lot of snowstorms in Southern Arizona. And it wasn't like this was like a deadly blizzard. Nobody was in danger from it or anything. But you can't really shoot the town of Redemption when it's covered in snow. When right. obviously you've shot the rest of the film and there's no snow. So they had to wait for the snow to melt. So, uh, so basically we almost had the coolest incidental Christmas movie. Is that, is that what I'm, well, is that what I'm I don't hearing? Know. Is it, I don't think it's set at Christmas time though. It could, it could have been though. I guess it, it could have been. been, it could have been, I guess. Sure. If you want to, if you want to make that head cannon, you go ahead, Todd. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> well, then in January of 1994, there was a devastating earthquake in Los Angeles. Uh, if you, if you're around our age, you might remember that because it was all over the news. It was known as the Northridge earthquake and it took place in the san fernando valley uh, the san fernando valley it had a magnitude of 6.7 and caused upwards of 50 billion dollars in damage making it one of the costliest natural disasters in american history it left more than 9,000 people injured and 57 people dead so 9,000 quick and 57 dead mm -hmm. is that too is that too soon it's too, too, too bad it's too bad of yeah. a joke okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and hold for edit. The too sued okay. and right. the too bad. 
That's well, a- while the shakes from the quake were felt as far away as San Francisco and Phoenix, it didn't directly affect the shoot. I don't think they actually felt it there. But since most of the crew working on the film called Los Angeles Home, it did require the production to shut down so that crew members could go check on their families and their houses to make sure everything was still intact. Nice. It may have been related yeah. to this or something, but I mean, I know that the studio was pissed off with Sharon Stone a lot, too, because she kept stopping production on the set. I'm sure that she was a part of this, but uh, uh, apparently at one point, like an older cast member died on set. Uh, oh, wow. I know I couldn't find why or how it might have just been like natural causes or something, sure. but she shut down the mm-hmm. set. Uh, for that as well yeah. and, a lot uh, of those like a lot of those background roles were locals there in arizona that they cast specifically because they had like weathered faces and they looked like the faces you'd see in an old spaghetti western so it might have been some an extra or a background person or you know something like that yeah it was apparently a native and uh jonathan gill uh who played god what's his name i just forgot his name the uh the guy who can't die from a bullet oh um the uh, the native american guy yes yeah, spotted horse is that it i think that's right well yeah. that's the character yeah right, right, his right. name is jonathan yeah. gill but spotted horse uh he's a member of the lakota tribe and mm-hmm. uh so they like i guess while the person died like she she shut down production and then they had to get like a, a, a helicopter out to like lift the person or something they did like a lakota ceremony out there oh, like wow. for the person oh jeez and uh, cool. she talks a little bit about that in the memoir too uh the studio not liking that she had done that but she says uh quote when someone died on my set i shut the show down and sat with the casting crew until the ambulance or helicopter came for the body yes we sit in silence and respect i pull the plug for the time it takes this is not common but it's the way i work when someone's too high to work I let the studio know this isn't always a popular choice, but it's mine. I don't burn other people's money to be popular. For me, it's called show business, not show take advantage of everyone. I don't get taken advantage of either. Yes, I have been asked and told to do things that are wildly inappropriate. I use my big girl voice. I say no. I'm loving Sharon Stone, honestly. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I was going to say, I might get a, a copy of that book. I mean, what were like the... Awesome book. What were the other choices here? You have a cast member die on set. They have a heart attack. What are you just going to like just drag their body over to the corner so that's not seen on screen and they just keep shooting? Yeah. Like what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, what do you do there? <laughs> what do you Pay no attention to the corpse in the corner. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> well, the town of redemption itself is oh, this. It's got such a cliche thing to say, but it is true in this film, but it is really almost a character in and of itself in this film. And the town was created by Patricia Von Brandenstein. Uh, She's an Academy Award winning production designer of films like Amadeus. That's the one she won an Academy Award for. Uh, She did Brian De Palma's The Untouchables, like incredibly well-respected. And her goal for for the look of the town in this movie was to kind of mirror the ethos of the film's villain, John Herod. Here is a quote from her uh, describing her approach. She says, Nothing lives in the town, even the cactus is dead, like the spirit of the people. Graves and abandoned safes are landscape hallmarks. The grand town clock serves only to define gunfights. The civic monument is Herod's house, dominating the town just as its occupant does. I wanted it to reflect the bloated, uh, I wanted it to reflect a bloated predator. And I, I love that quote. First of all, it's nailed uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely um, nailed it. <laughs> it is like when you watch this movie, Herod's house, it's, 
you don't normally see that in these little towns. Like the, the, the living quarters aren't ever really in the vicinity of like the main strip of these Western towns when you right. watch these movies, but his just like sits at the end of the street so that he can see everything that's going on. And the rest of the town's all beat up and shitty looking and kind mm-hmm. of like everything's run down. Everything, the, the paint's all fading, the wood's all chipped and his house like, sits on the end and it is immaculate and enormous. And it's big enough yeah. to house like 30 people and it's just him living there. One of the recurring themes that uh, we keep kind of coming across as we talk about Raimi's films, we talked about it a lot on the last couple of episodes especially, was how receptive he is as a director to other people's ideas. Uh, He's like a little kid, you know, you show him something cool, he's going to want to see it in his movie. It's happened time and time again. We talked about it on Army of Darkness, we talked about it on on Darkman, where a cast member or another crew member or somebody's like, hey, let's try this, this could look cool. Uh, I mean, him and the K and B guys, that's basically what's happening there on army of darkness is they're showing him stuff that they can, that he can use for army of darkness. And he thinks it's all so cool that he wants to use all of it. (laughs) So that happens on this film as well. Uh, Here's an example that I found that's really fun. So before filming began, Lance Hendrickson approached a friend of his named Rex Rossi with with a challenge. He said, I've got to shoot a card out of this kid's hand. And I think there has to be more to it than that. Hendrickson had been working uh, on creating his character Ace. uh, And he had kind of customized the look of him on his own. We talked a little bit about that in Pumpkinhead, I think, how he likes to choose his own uh, costumes and his own looks for his characters, kind of create the character on his own. So he's doing that here. He the mustache was his idea. The long hair is his idea. Him wearing like this all this leather. Uh, he he saw this guy as being like a showboat, really flamboyant, and simply shooting a card out of someone hand someone's hand. He didn't think was enough for this character. So Rosie Rex Rosie was Hendrick's mentor. He was actually the person that Hendrickson credits as teaching him to ride a horse in the first place when he was like, mm-hmm. when he was young. Uh, Rosie had had a long career as a trick writer, meaning that he had he would perform stunts and tricks on horseback. Uh, in fact, he was actually the trick writer world champion in 1950 and then again in 1971. Uh, he also had a long career as a stuntman performing horse and falling stunts for uh, in a ton of Western movies, doubling for the likes of Clint Eastwood, Kevin Costner, Jeff Bridges, Roy Rogers. Like he's double, he's doing stunt doubling for all these guys. And so this, this is who we're talking about. I, uh, professional wrestlers and stunt people, I swear, they just like, and it doesn't matter. It seems like how old you get, you're just no. like, this is what I do, and I love it. I just yep. want to kill myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. <laughs> it's it's the art of not kill, getting yourself killed, is what right. it is. Yeah, <laughs> that's really what stunt stunt performing is. So about a month before filming began, Hendrickson and Rossi began working on the horse trick where Ace flips over the horse backwards before shooting the card out of the kid's hand. So he, he's like practicing this religiously, perfecting it uh, on his own. This is not something he, that he like had to do. It's not in the script or anything. It's not Sam Raimi's unaware of it. He's just like, this is what this character would do. So fast forward to the day that they're actually filming this scene. And Hendrickson called Sam Raimi over. He's like, come here. I got, I got an idea. Come here. He calls a stuntman to bring a horse over. They bring this big like white horse on over. Lance hopped on the horse. He did his little flip backwards on it and then shot under the belly it's a really cool move it looks really cool and sam raimi thought the same thing because he's like oh man that's going in my movie and that's how that scene came to (laughs) came to be sam raimi just saw saw something he thought was cool and said that's in my movie that's that's sam raimi's catchphrase i think that's in the movie you know sam loves playing outside the script i saw a 
a really cool story for Bruce Campbell, uh, who was on set. And he talks about going on set and the uh, wedding shimp. He's a, he's one of the wedding shimps. Well, yeah, yeah. He eventually <laughs> does have some like uh, stuff for that. But uh, he, he says he was there one day when Sam is talking to Gene Hackman and he tells it was like at like TIFF or something. I saw somebody asked him something about the quick of the dead or I forget how it came up. But anyway, he answers the question. He tells this story. He says, uh, so he's like, I walk in and he's like, Sam Raimi is talking to Gene Hackman. And he says, okay, all right. So I'm going to need you to come in tip your hat over here and then sit down in this chair. And I want you to lean over to this guy and you say, what are the odds on the kid? Uh, sorry. I know there's a good bit of stuff that's not in the script, but just work with me here. Okay. And so you're going to do that. Tip your hat, sit down in this chair and say, what are the odds on the kid? And he says that Gene Hackman looks over at Sam and says, Oh yeah, I'm not doing any of that. <laughs> None of that. <laughs> and, and Bruce Campbell's like, so Sam has a reason for everything he wants to do. And he says, no, at this point, you have two options as a director. You could either urinate yourself and let Gene Hackman walk all over you for the rest of the shoot. Or he's like, or you could get pissed and you can scream at the guy. And uh, you could be like, this is my set. And I do what I want. Blah, 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 blah. But Sam pauses for a minute and he says, okay, Gene, well, Hey, listen, you don't have to tip your hat, but you know, the thing is, is like, you're the boss. You're the most important. And the gunfight doesn't start without you. So, you know, that's, that's what I'm thinking there. And he says, uh, Gene Hackman goes, fine. I ain't tipping the hat. I'll nod at him or something. And, uh, and then Sam goes, oh, okay. That's that. That's great, man. Uh, let's do, let's do that. He's like, I'm not sitting in that chair though. He's like, oh, that's that's cool, Gene. You don't have to sit in that chair. He's like, all I was thinking there is just like, you see, like everybody else, they're just like standing. And I guess, you know, I was thinking, you're the king. So, like, what would really set you apart is like you do what a king would do and you go sit in the throne. And uh, and that would make you stand out. Gene Hagman's like, I don't know, maybe. Nick's in that kid line, though. I'm not doing that. Beat, beat. Yeah, okay. I guess I was just thinking because. Like later, the audience is going to find out that this is your son. And despite everything, it'd be some pretty cool character work if they can go back and they can look at this scene and they can say, oh, he did care about his kid because he's asking about him here. Mm -hmm. So like Gene Hackman's like, huh? Okay. So like Bruce says he remembers that conversation. He talked so like, him into every single, every single yeah. thing. He says he comes in later to watch dailies with Sam in the editing room and Sam goes, Hey, look at this. And he like puts in this tape and he hits play. And he says, Gene Hackman walks in the room, tips his hat to the guy, sits in the chair, leans over to the guy. And is like, so what are the odds on the kid? And Sam Raimi reaches up, hits stop and says, boom, dailies are over. <laughs> Just a mic drop. Nice. Nice. So as we get into post-production on this, uh, for once, uh, this this area of the discussion is not going to be about Sam Raimi fighting the MPAA trying to get an R rating on this one. This is the it's I think this is the first time this has happened on the Sam Raimi, <laughs> Raimi series where he's not fighting the MPAA over the film's rating. Uh, there were, however, some scenes cut due to their content. Most notably, there's a love scene between Stone and Crow, which was cut at Stone's request because she felt that it didn't fit with the film's established reality. And let me tell you guys, I tried to find this scene um, just for. 
purely research purposes. Mm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it was it was included in the films uh, European and Japanese. Release. I was going to say, I, th- I thought I read that it was. In oh, the they shot it. Release. They, they shot, shot it. it. Oh, they shot oh. it. Yeah, it was cut during the editing process. Uh, and it is. I, I didn't find the scene where I. There were some when I googled it. There were some questionable sites uh, in the results that might have actually had it, but they might have xvideos.com. They might have also definitely like <laughs> given me my computer a virus. Pornhub, <laughs> yeah, Pornhub had it. <laughs> but uh, I did find some screenshots and breakdowns of the scene, and it is not necessarily a love scene. It is a straight up sex scene that begins with a little bit of light bondage because sh- Court is in shackles in it, oh. uh, and it culminates with. I mean, it is full-on Sharon Stone nudity. Uh, and it definitely culminates with a not-so-subtle suggestion of oral sex. Like, she, like, goes out of down at a frame, and you see his face, and he is definitely getting blown by uh, by Ellen <laughs> in that scene. Uh, and it's raining for whatever reason. They're all soaking wet. Uh, they're indoors, but they're all they're soaking wet. Um, that, maybe there was a leak. I in bet. The- I bet she's soaking wet. <laughs> yeah! Uh, there it is. Uh, Russell Crowe! <laughs> <laughs> There's also a shot later that was cut out that showed Sharon Stone nude in an old bathtub. So there were a couple things cut out. I mean, you do see a little bit of Sharon Stone booby in her scene with Leonardo DiCaprio, like the morning after. But mm. it's it's uh, but yeah, they she felt like that didn't fit with the, their tone of the rest of the film, I guess. Uh, so, but you know, I guess Google it if you want to see it, and maybe if you find it on a site that doesn't look like it's going to make my hard drive melt. Um, go ahead. You yeah, can send it our way. Google it, then Google you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. That's a masturbate. I was talking about masturbating. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, if it, I mean, if you really want to see Sharon Stone naked, I'm just I'm having trouble thinking of something else she would have been naked in. Um <laughs> what else could it be? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, we'll we'll figure it out. Well, for the film score, Raimi was working with yet another new collaborator. Alan Silvestri. Uh, you probably know the name. He's probably best known for his work with Robert Zemeckis, uh, including the Back to the Future films. I mean, Forrest Gump, I think he did. I know he did Castaway. He's done a ton of Zemeckis films. Uh, he also had scored James Cameron's uh, The Abyss. And in more recent years, he's done the scores for several Disney and Marvel films. In The Quick and the Dead, though, like this score... I mean, I love, I, th- I think the score of this movie is really great because it's very clear that Silvestri is channeling the work of Ennio Morricone, who is probably the most well-known composer to come out of the uh, spaghetti Western genre. And Alan Silvestri also happened to provide a little music for a little film called Star Trek Insurrection. That's right, folks. It's a Who Am I Trekking With bonus part. <laughs> <laughs> I love the uh, excitement. Though. Oh. oh yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, from 1998, directed by Jonathan Frakes. Uh, when, uh, if you're familiar with that movie, uh, long sh- long story short, the crew goes to this place where there's some type of radiation that keeps everybody young. Picard goes back to his quarters and says, uh, "Computer, play music." And of course, it starts playing some, uh, you know, opera, or, you know, something very slow, piano. He's like, "No, no, no, something Latin." And it starts playing this mambo music and Picard, you see Picard start to dance the mambo a little bit around his quarters. That music was written by Alan Silvestri. (laughs) The mambo music. How do they get him to just do that? 
I don't know. <laughs> and why, and like, why did he write that and not whoever wrote the rest of the score? That's very strange. Exactly. But exactly, I guess it's kind of like yeah. Danny Elfman coming in and doing the March of the Dead. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a super weird part of the movie, but it's kind of fun. Yeah. That <laughs> was done by Alan Silvestri. <laughs> wow. And, and that's everybody in Star Trek. But um, bump, bump. <laughs> this is one that the studio had their way with. Uh, Sharon Stoll as a producer tried leaning in on Danny Elfman, who, you know, Sam mm-hmm. Raby would also be familiar with. Uh, but from her memoir, quote, when I said I wanted Danny Elfman of Oingo Boingo to do the music, uh, the studio cracked and locked me out of the editing room. The oh. consensus was that you cannot put modern music on a Western. Uh, I could say that studio heads are not always ahead of the curve, to put it kindly. Danny Elfman has, of course, had a legendary career doing many films and won a Grammy for the Batman theme, but no woman star, and certainly not I, with my foot-shooting ideas, was going to be telling anybody what to do, whether I was a producer or not. I mean, I'll be <laughs> honest, I gotta, I gotta side with the studio on that one. I love Danny Elfman, but nothing that he had made prior to this would indicate to me that his work would fit well with a Western. And Alan yeah, Silvestri's score is spot on in this movie you could do worse than alan silvestri this was like the 10th action film i think up to like he did judge dread in like 95 but i think he did like 10 action movies in five years he did uh back to the you mentioned the back to the future movies he did like young guns 2 predator 2 ricochet stopper my mom will shoot the bodyguard super mario brothers sidekicks judgment night blown away all these in like a span of just a few years yeah i mean he's he's a and he's, I mean, he's one of our most recognizable film composers, I think. Uh, oh, so it's, yeah. and I, and I love Danny Elfman's work. Uh, I really love Danny Elfman. And I, and I do know that Danny Elfman can do stuff that's not, that doesn't sound like your typical Danny Elfman score. Cause he actually does it with Sam Raimi's next movie. Uh, if you mm-hmm. didn't know that that was a Danny Elfman score, you would absolutely never guess that he scored a, a, a simple plan but at this point in his career it was really like i mean his his stuff's big and bombastic and operatic and very fitting for stuff like batman but i would think i mean he, he could surprise you but they definitely it's not like they chose like the wrong guy because alan silvestri just kills it in in his right. role as composer on this film yeah well when the film was released in february of 1995 critical reviews were We'll say mixed at best. Uh, In his (laughs) two-star review for the film, Roger Ebert said, The movie's story, as you have grasped, isn't much, but The Quick and the Dead is not without its good points. The director is Sam Raimi, and he displays, once again, his zest for stylistic invention. Uh, So that's not... mild praise there you know he's saying that sam raimi's good at what he does then he goes on to praise spinati's cinematography he goes on to praise gene hackman who he says quote somehow survives the material as preposterous as the plot was there was never a line of hackman dialogue that didn't sound as if he believed it the same can't be said alas for sharon stone who apparently believed that if she played her character as still silent and impassive and mysterious we would find that interesting um, and I, what do you guys think of Sharon Stone's performance here? I think I, if I anything, of, she talked too much. I, I would, I would have <laughs> said like she should have gone Clint Eastwood route, like that should yeah. have been what she wanted. But yeah. I don't know. I, I kind of look, I kind of dig the, uh, I, you know, 
sorry for for making a pun here but like the stony look uh you know that she has when she comes mm-hmm. into town and she's she's very focused on her mission and you know letting her eyes move around the room as opposed to her entire head um you know and you know keeping the phrases you know short sweet to the point i dig it i i think it i think it's a good look for her i, I, think, I think she it was looks good performance choices like I dig it. I think she looks great. I think she looks the part. I think she's got that steely eyed like glare down. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost kind of I kind of agree with Gary. I think that she could have uh, spoken less because I do think that her delivery of, of the dialogue doesn't it's not great. I don't think it's not like it's a bad performance. I just think it it's one of those performances that feels it feels a little too modern for a period piece. Uh, mm. I, that's just the best way I can describe. I mean, I, I think I've said that on the show before, but sometimes there are some actors that are just very, they're just very modern personalities. Uh, okay. I think of Cameron Diaz in, in the gangs of New York or something like that, you know, oh, like yeah. Cameron Diaz. Uh, okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's not that she's bad. It's not like it's a bad performance, but she just comes across as a very modern personality. So she feels a little bit out of place in a period film. And sometimes that happens. I kind of feel that way about Sharon Stone's performance here. It's not that it's bad. It just doesn't quite fit the setting. I respect what she's going for. And I respect her a lot for what she does and everything. But yeah, I mean, for what it sounds like she would have liked, and especially like she talks about her love for like a Clint Eastwood or something like, you know, Besides the fact that she's just, you know, and I'm again respectfully, she's just beautiful. So yeah. it's it's tough, like because you feel like in the old west you'd have like some crow's feet and some like right, you yeah, know, yeah. you'd be yeah. a little more rough around the edges, sure. but yeah. weathered. Uh, she'd, weathered. She'd look more like sure. Calamity Jane in in like Deadwood. Yeah, right, yeah. Right, so right. like you, you you know the way you could try to work against that, I guess, is like if you just keep it silent, and deadly, and like. Yeah. like like Todd's farts. <laughs> anyway, you get my point. Half of uh, that, half of that statement is correct. <laughs> but they, but, I mean, uh, she does look great. I mean, she looks like a badass when no, she comes she does, walking she, the she, town. She the looks, way that the way that Ramy like frames her in the doorway when she first comes in the saloon, and that that shot where she. Um, she's about to leave, you know, she's packing up her horse and she opens the barn door and you see this like yeah. sunset or, or at the end after she, she blows up the entire goddamn town and she comes walking through the smoke. Like she looks like a fucking badass. She I was going to say, and the thing <laughs> is, is, you know, you're going to get help from the director you've chosen. Like, right. cause he, he knows he's, what he's doing. He's going to make you look and, good. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I joked earlier about the, the sex stuff, but it's like a hundred percent that should have been cut. Like that shouldn't be in the movie. Yeah, she doesn't need that. Like that's, that's, it doesn't make sense for her to what this character is supposed to be. Yeah, It doesn't make right. sense for her character. Right. If her character is so focused on her mission, then yeah, that is not, that's not a factor. She's just there but- to fucking kill Gene Hackman. By the way, when she blew up that entire town, how much collateral damage do you think there was? Like, uh, other than the I town itself, the same ev- thing. I every, was like, everyone's home and and place of business are now destroyed, and I everyone wasn't out in the streets. The like, somebody was still had to be fucking bartending uh, back at Horace's. Like his 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 bar back or somebody's in there. They're blown to smithereens. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was literally I watched it with with the wife, and I was like. Work. Did people take off work that day? Yeah. Because, every, are all shit, Gene are... Hackman's not the only person who lives here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, just blow up his house. Blow up the <laughs> clock tower in his house. You're good. That's enough of a distraction. 
You don't, I, don't know. I guess some people town. are, you know, when you're anarchists, like it's just, you know, <laughs> whatever. It's all worth it to get the point across. I don't know. Well, going on with our, our uh, critical reaction, I, there's another one in Rolling Stone. Peter Travers, who's just an, always an old grump, uh, he said <laughs> that audiences would leave the film, quote, dazed instead of dazzled, as if an expert marksman had drawn his gun only to shoot himself in the foot well we know that sharon stone's uh mo apparently according to the studio <laughs> well it sounds to me like peter travers and roger ebert might need a nap but uh what about modern reviewers gary surely they've softened on the film right oh you would think but uh luckily we uh were not uh we were not hard it was not hard to find some some nap needing people this time around All right, so this was not hard to do. Um, there was <laughs> yeah. plenty of uh, there were plenty of people that You'd have to dig too deep this, on this one. Yeah, <laughs> plenty of people hated this fucking movie, and uh, <laughs> and and you know the thing is, is that I feel like that was the consensus early on, and, and I guess we'll probably talk about this, but uh, as it stands right now, like the movie is at i just wanted to see is it 3.4 on letterbox so that's pretty yeah. good that's 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 decent. yeah yeah i think it's i think the reputation on it has softened a little bit over the years but i'm sure not everyone loves it i'm sure um yeah no i i i, I was not uh i did not have a lack of reviews here um let's see here let's start with john moody 8231 he called it the slow and the brain dead <laughs> not even evil dead sam raimi could help this pitiful excuse for a spaghetti western gene hackman seems to be the only one not going through the motions and actually giving us a decent performance however the script written by simon moore is so incoherent and dull the characters are characters you've seen in every revenge movie ever but sam is a bit to blame as well holes in the head big enough to see the person who put them there and People doing backflips after getting shot were just a few of the very unbelievable things in this movie. Sam should just stick to Spider-Man. That's what that person said. So that person likes everything that dislikes everything that Sam Raimi brought to the table as a director. Like, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like the uh, things that you would want from a Sam Raimi Western. He <laughs> thinks that should not. Should, anyway, we'll yeah, get yeah. Uh, I'll get into that. You're, you're going to find that's a theme here. Uh, how about uh, Tom Soul? It wasn't quick, and you'll wish you're dead. <laughs> ah, I love these guys. Uh, nice. What a waste of talent. This Western was the worst. Sharon Stone, yes, worse than Basic Instinct, and Leo DiCaprio movies I've ever seen. The plot was garbage, and the special effects contributed to the boredom. I wish it had been 3D, so what? A, so what of the bullets could have put me out of my misery? I recommend seeing this if you're <laughs> mentally unstable or if all the Christopher Walken movies are rented at the video store. Wow. I don't think that person understands how um, 3D works. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> uh, Cardi says that it's an inane piece of crap. I'm not sure if this is a spoiler. If so, I apologize, but you have been put on guard. It's bad enough that Hollywood perpetuates the myth of the Wild West gunfight with two characters, one in a white hat, the other in a black, meeting at high noon for a quick draw contest to the death. In fact, this sort of thing rarely happened. If two men with a reputation happened to be in the same town at the same time, they generally went out of their way to avoid each other. Now, we are to believe that a large sum of money 
much of it contributed by corporation, is offered for a single elimination gunfight contest. I realize that this is fiction, but come on! The dialogue's ludicrous. The gunfight's ridiculously staged. The ending beyond belief, and the characters are cartoonish cardboard cutouts. A marvelous cast is wasted. With offerings like this, it's a small wonder that the public no longer flocks to westerns. If we if we started making westerns <laughs> that were like a hundred percent period accurate, you know how goddamn boring they would probably oh, be. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. how mundane everyday life is. Right, it's the just, old west. It's just it. everyone's dirty and trying not to die from syphilis. Yeah, and rattlesnake bites. <laughs> and rattlesnake yeah. bites. Uh, let's see. Robert says this is the worst western I've ever seen. First. A dumb blonde as the fastest gun in the West is stretching the limits of my imagination to the limit and beyond. Sharon Stone at Chaps just doesn't pass muster. Was it Tori Spelling available? The plot, if you care to call it one, goes sharply downhill from there. Dressing up top Hollywood talent in Western costume like comedy buffoons, mindlessly shooting one another down like clowns at the Barnum and Bailey Circus. This wasn't a serious ode to the Spaghetti Western or any other respectable or legitimate genre. It was a superficial ode to Hollywood formula gone terribly, terribly wrong. No amount of Western cliches or action sequences could save this monumental turkey from itself. This isn't a movie. It's a cartoon. The quick and the dead is dead on arrival. It is a cartoon. That's why it's so fun. And let me tell you, uh, (laughs) Sharon Stone and Chaps passes my muster. (laughs) Uh, and i i'm sorry if i have too many of these i'm trying to i'm trying to wrap it up there's only like a a few more that's what Uh, editing's for yeah if you (laughs) if you don't like any of these you can get rid of them uh laura laura bwc says uh the title is just music and it says please redo all of the music for this movie and it would be a hit all the stars that appear in this movie are incredible the music sucks Oh no! Really, <laughs> Barbara Joe Laduca. Joe Laduca. It's a pseudonym. <laughs> this fucking sucks. It's Danny Elfman just pissed off. <laughs> what was her name? Barbara BWC. Yeah, Laura like, B- BWC. Laura Big White Cock. Is that just me? Is that just one of the first thing? Is Does that the first thing you think? BWC. I don't know. I know BBC, but uh... well, they're they're more rare, but. <laughs> <laughs> Cinema shock like, after dark. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. My glasses got fogged up after that comment. It's because it was steam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. JK, one out of five stars here. Comedy is the title. I assume this is JK Simmons. Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> as as his character from Whiplash. Right. Can you, can, you read, can you read it as JK Simmons? Worst written piece of hackneyed spaghetti western one can imagine. This really should have been played as a spoof of the late 60s westerns. The roles are all caricatures of Stone. And, and Stone obviously did not want any shots of her looking less than beautiful. Probably the only thing worth seeing, but that even gets old. I want pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That was good. That was J.K. Simmons oh. as, as a professional wrestler doing a promo on somebody. <laughs> uh. Uh, uh, Isabel says, uh, actual most boring movie I've ever seen in my life. Yeah! <laughs> hey, that count? There we go. <laughs> that counts. <laughs> uh, and uh, here's a uh, Sergeant Jackass. This film is a joke. 
The best way to describe it is that it's a Western spoof that tries too hard to be serious and gritty. The thing is, it's not meant to be a spoof, so all the stupid scenes that occur are completely out of place and make no sense or at least give me a migraine. The, the skilled cast is utterly wasted on this film's awful writing. The jumpy and jarry transitions, coupled with the most headache-inducing editing, left a sour taste in my mouth. The only redeemable thing about it is that it's fun to make fun of among friends. But all in all, this ain't it. Don't watch if you value your dignity. Wow. Jeez. Cinema Shock listeners, do you value your dignity? Because we don't. This episode. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I promise I'm almost done. These are all one-star reviews, except this one, which is a half a half star. Bear with me, because I'm going to read this whole thing. And if you don't like it, go fuck yourself. <laughs> this is the last one. But this person, just it just the more I read it, the more I was like, this person needs a fucking nap. Shogun Rua. Sam Raimi is an overrated hack with a very narrow range of things he does well and exactly one good movie, Army of Darkness on his ledger. If you ever doubt that, look for the utter failure that is The Quick and the Dead. With an amazing cast from top to bottom, littered with huge stars and Gene Hackman, Russell Crowe, and the young Leonardo DiCaprio, an outstanding character actor, including, or, and outstanding character actors, including Lance Henriksen and Tobin Bell, Raimi produces an incompetent, incoherent mess that doesn't understand even the bare basics of the genre. Sharon Stone stars as the protagonist, the least intimidating or cool Western hero I have ever seen, and easily the most ridiculous. Her tough facial expressions look like she's constipated. Her lines, meant to sound tough, are cringier than some of the dialogue from The Room. Her wearing Western clothes with a decorated firearm no gunfighter would ever use looks like bad cosplay. She looks weak and frail. She further proves herself weak mentally and emotionally. You know it's going to be a shit show when the opening scene, Stone rides up on Belle's character who shoots her for absolutely no reason. Then, when Belle examining the body splayed out, Stone awkwardly makes a jerky movement from the ground to the standing man that clearly doesn't make contact, but no matter, Belle flies off his feet and back several feet like he was hit by a cannonball. Knocked out cold. Apparently, Stone has super strength. Not to worry, this never comes up again for the rest of the movie, where she appears to be thoroughly average strength. Oh, and Stone rides off after chaining Belle to the wagon. Why in the hell did she arrive there in the first place? Who knows? There's never an it. This is never addressed either. I could go on for pages about the idiotic parts of this picture, how no one as reckless, bloodthirsty, or venal taking 50 cents from every dollar as Hackman's Herod would ever become the boss of this town as its residents would either leave or a posse would kill him within a few weeks or about how ridiculous a gunfighting tournament is and that the price of $123,000 would be equivalent to at least over $10 million now, which makes no sense given the revenue streams of the town about how inane it is to aim for the arm in a gun deal and magically hit it every time about how laughably idiotic it is that regular Colt handguns with the plot requires it suddenly blow giant holes in a man's head or cause him to flip backwards in a somersault, the latter making the finale even worse than it already was. The single handgun 
wound, especially to the stomach, is very unlikely to kill unless it's by an infection over a course of days, or that Leonardo DiCaprio's kid is the type of arrogant pipsqueak who usually gets slapped around and humiliated by the tougher, older men in the westerns, or how Sharon stole sleeping with such a fucking goof after getting drunk is shameful and humiliating, only degrading her character even further, and why is it that Crow's character is so hell-bent on being a pacifist, but then completely abandons it when the actual tournament without it playing any role at all. The thing is, none of this would be remotely a problem if the movie were a Western comedy in the style of Terrence Hill, or at least light and tone. In fact, 15 minutes in, with all the ridiculousness, I thought this was where Raimi was heading. Army of Darkness in the Old West. But that's not the case at all. It's all played completely dead serious, replete with mon maudlin emotion and stone ugly crying it makes the utter idiocy of the picture that much more stark the only good parts of this picture are provided by the stiller cast no thanks to Raimi, and most of that is provided by the great gene hackman saddled with an inane nonsensical character spouting dumb lines and an even distracting mannerisms why the hell was he carving an apple with a knife instead of eating it normally hackman nevertheless tries his damnedest to elevate the material. His speech after dispatching Cantrell was genuinely good villain stuff and belonged in a far better picture. Alas, he is in the movie of a director who doesn't understand Westerns in the least. 31 out of 100. That is what this person says. <laughs> that guy needs a nap. That, I, I, sorry. Like a long nap. <laughs> I was about to say I had to read that one. So I was like, I was, I was looking through this, and I got to that one. And I was like, this motherfucker. Yeah, I mean, he, he's complaining about the movie not being realistic enough, which is utterly missing the point. I think. I mean, Sam Raimi wants realism in certain things, like the he wants it to look period accurate, and he wants the guns to be right, and things like that. But obviously, he's still bringing his Sam Raiminess to it, uh, which yeah. is why you hire Sam Raimi, right? Uh, I, I do have one other little review I want to read before we start discussing this a, a little further uh, from the time of its release. This one was written by Entertainment Weekly's Owen Gleiberman, who is a critic who I generally disagree with most of the time. Uh, in his largely negative review, he says, quote, the plot of this low camp revenge thriller is little more than an excuse to line up one badass cowboy or, or girl opposite another and let the eyeball to eyeball fireworks fly. Now he's saying that as if it's a negative thing. I was about to but, say, yes. Yeah. That's the yes. fucking point. Owen, <laughs> that's the movie they were trying to make. This you nailed it. It was a fun <laughs> like, cowboy fucking tournament. Exactly. Like he's <laughs> complaining about that, but that's literally like the movie they're trying to make. Like that's what they're, that's what they're going for. Uh, so basically in his negative review, he is also saying that they made the exact movie they were trying to make and succeeded at it. <laughs> that's what you're saying. Cause this, that's what this is. I mean, I'm not going to say that this is like Grammy's best film. I mean, let's not, that's not that's not be crazy here. Uh, I mean, if we were ranking these, and maybe we will rank Raimi at some point, like we did James Cameron, maybe after we do the Spider-Man trilogy down the line or something. Uh, but mm. if we're ranking these on the uh, of the movies we've discussed so far, this is going to be like right above Crime Wave, but below everything else probably. Uh, that's, I think that's fair. Uh, but that's that's not a dig on the movie. I just think the other ones are a little bit better. But this is a fun movie. Uh, it's mm. a lot of fun. It's it is lean and mean. It trims away all the fat of the genre and it leaves mm -hmm. us with everyone's favorite part of the Western 
which is the climactic gunfight. Only this time we get like gunfight after gunfight and they're fun. Uh, I mean, the majority of the film's runtime is taken up by either gunfights or the like lead up those moments before the gunfight, you know, that are kind of tense. Mm. Uh, and all told, there are 11 gunfights in this movie. <laughs> which is probably some kind of record. Uh, and I think that's fun because like, as you watch it, just based on, you know, what the movie's about, you start, well, you start to learn to like some of these characters. Uh, you, you like like Lance Hendrickson's ace, or you like Keith Davis, Sergeant Cantrell. You like these guys. I mean, you, you might not like them as like, from like a moral standpoint, but they're fun right, characters right. to watch. They're very charismatic. They're fun to watch. Uh, but then as you're watching, just, you start getting this kind of realization that some or, or most of the characters that you like by necessity of the plot of the film are probably going to die. <laughs> so, yeah. so some of the deaths, you know, are, are cathartic. Like when dread gets shot in the dick, you know, that's, I don't think he di- does. He die from that. No, he dies a few minutes later when he comes bursting into the saloon. Cause she doesn't kill him, but he does die. Um, right. That one you're like, okay, that guy's deserved to die. But then others like the kids, like the kids, Leonardo DiCaprio's <laughs> death is heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, it, it almost doesn't fit the film because it is so like sad that it almost feels out of place in the rest of this film, which is pretty fun. That and the and the ladies uh flashback sequence, which is hundred percent necessary to the film, yeah. but it is a lot more serious than everything else that's going on. I, I would I would argue that the reason that it that it does work is because it's to build on just making you so disgusted with Gene Hackman that yeah. it's oh, yeah, yeah. for him to get flipped over with a gun you understand why she's so pissed <laughs> off right yeah uh i mean what 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 they're doing here what Ramey and moore are doing here uh that i think is cool is is basically they're creating a western but with the structure of a kung fu tournament movie this yes! is oh yeah <laughs> i mean this is enter the dragon but in the old west and with you know guns instead of like feet or whatever but this <laughs> but this is a it's it that's what this i mean the pl- the structure is exactly like those kung fu tournament movies uh that, that, yeah. that people like bruce lee made only within the old west setting and i've never seen that before i think it's cool you know i've yeah. never seen it in another movie uh and it's that structure and that simplicity that i think make the quick and the dead i think it makes this movie very unique when compared to pretty much every other western yeah, it's 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 mm. definitely it's just I'm try I feel like there was a movie I saw that is like with gangsters or something that did something similar to this too. I mean, probably after this, but uh point is is that yeah, it's it's your the goal here is to can you make people give a shit enough that it's you know about the individual characters in enough time that when they die that it matters that they die. Like right. it's it's, I, I mean I I could almost argue it's it's like not lean enough. Like they could have gone even leaner. It's not supposed to be. That's what's frustrating about seeing the stuff about the studio wanting it to be spread out, or you know, like they get frustrated because they wanted a script that gets it up close to two and a half hours, and you're like, right. no, this is this is not that movie. This that's movie not what kind of movie we're in. There's plenty yeah. of those. Go watch Wyatt Earp. Exactly. You, know? you can do that. That's fine. But this this movie is like. Like you keep saying lean and mean, that's it. Like it's supposed to be lean and mean. It's a, it's a gunfighter tournament. That's yeah. what the movie is. That's, the whole that's thing. what they set out to make. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and, and you're just supposed been... to have fun making unique special characters that kill each other in the tournament. Exactly. Like memorable characters 
like like all the best like fight tournament movies have like even if they don't have a big role they're that they, they, you want them to be memorable because they they it's mortal they, combat the old west right yes, ex- yes exactly that's exactly what it is uh and it could have been played differently you could have had ellen the lady as your hero and then a bunch of just random bad guys that she had to fight through uh on her way to herod but bad guys that don't have like any personality or whatever they're just kind of faceless bad guys uh or gunfighters bad, bad or not but that's not what more script does instead he makes you care about you know herod's son he makes you you start to care about court about russell crowe's character and then by doing that as the movie goes on and more and more folks start to get eliminated from the tournament, you are watching this knowing that inevitably there are going to be two people fighting each other and you don't want either of them to die. (laughs) You know, like there's this moment towards the end of the film where I think it says, it's they're showing the close up of the chalkboard and there's only two left. And it's like, it's Herod and the kid and it's court and, and the lady. And you're like, well, shit. I mean, I know that this movie has to end with Sharon Stone and, and Herod fighting each other, but I don't want to see the kid die. I don't want to see Court die. Uh, yeah. And so you're you're left watching this, going, "Shit, man, I like these guys. I don't want I don't want any of them to die." Yeah. And I th- I think that in the hands of the wrong director, that structure it could have gotten repetitive. I mean, they could have if they had chosen the wrong person. This could have it could have gotten boring just watching gunfight after gunfight. No, uh, yeah, but Sam Raimi took it as kind of a challenge and vowed to make every gunfight look differently. And that's according to Simon Moore. He's like Sam Raimi was determined to make every single gunfight in this visually distinct. Uh, every single and everyone is every single one is shot in its own way. Every single every single uh, gunfight in this looks nothing like the one that came before it. It's it's actually really cool if you watch it and, and notice that. Um, and Raimi, as we're going to discuss this, but he may have, he eventually blamed his visual style on the film's failure. But I think it's that style that makes the movie work so well. I really don't think this could have worked with anyone else or or, or not with any of the people that the studio probably was looking at. It, yeah. 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 I'd have to agree. Yeah. It, it's just sad because I mean, I think they got the right director. I think everybody had the right idea. It's just the studio couldn't get fully behind it but but i mean because of the way the script writing worked out that i guess it did end up with what what was intended um but uh i i like i said i even think he could have gone leaner like i think sharon stone should not have had i don't know like the the, you know she talks about clint eastwood so i feel like it's fair to compare uh clint eastwood the great thing about him and a lot of his roles is just shutting the fuck up and just Mm -hmm. being a badass and uh and you know he doesn't have to be. He is Clint Eastwood. He's a good-looking dude. He's a big guy. He's got all the cool action hero stuff going for him. But he was cool with just shutting up and just killing people. Right. <laughs> you know, just he letting, didn't need letting anything more than that. Right. Just being a physical presence. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I do like. You know, I, I watched this movie a couple of times. I watched it uh, last week, and I watched it again last night just as a refresher because it had been you know a, a little while since my first viewing and. Watching it last night, I, I really tried to pay attention because I'd already done most of this research by then. So I was really trying to pay attention to how he shoots each gunfight, you know? And mm. it really is like he really uses every visual trick in the book to tell the story of each gunfight. Like each gunfight has its own little contained structure almost. Yeah. Like when, when Court faces Foy, 
which is the, his first gunfight. The audience doesn't even see the two men draw. Basically, you see like the clock tick hit the thing. Somebody drops a beer glass. It shows like a close-up of a beer glass hitting and shattering. Then you hear a gun blast, and then you get a close-up of Foy's eyes as he's struck. You never see Court pull his gun. He'd never see him draw. And what Sammy's, what Sam Raimi's doing there is he's showing us how fast Court really is because we all it's been is talk until this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's so quick that the camera can't even capture his draw is what he's doing there. Uh, yeah. And and you know that's he does stuff like that all throughout. Like he'll he'll draw out those moments between when the two gunfighters are staring at each other with all these quick zooms and close ups and all kinds of wacky wacky stuff. But it's different every time and every time. He's not just throwing out different styles for the hell of it. The, the the techniques that he's using each time make sense for that specific gunfight. You know, yeah. not it, it wouldn't make sense on all the other ones, but it makes sense on that one. Yeah, you, you talk about the distinctiveness of each of these characters. If this were a comic book property, each one of these characters would have at least a one shot, if not a yeah. mini series yeah. telling this story from their perspective, like how and they got here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would be in for all of it because yeah, that would be they, a fun way yeah. to do it. It's like, except uh, for dread. I don't want his, I don't want his. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you know, in the past we've discussed how Raimi's films often homage the movies that he grew up on. You know, we talked about, uh, Universal Monsters, how that influenced Darkman, uh, mm-hmm. or the you know the Ray Harryhausen films, and Army of Darkness. Uh, here, I think it's kind of an interesting, almost twist on that because Sam Raimi, I'm sure he grew up watching westerns, but I, I haven't found anything where he's indicated that he was like big on spaghetti westerns or anything. You know, when they came out, or or uh, a fan right. prior to this. But so yeah. what he's really doing here is not homaging stuff that he grew up on. He's homaging the films that inspired his writer, Simon Moore. But if he, I don't know what, like I said, I don't know what his experience with Spaghetti Westerns was before this, but it's clear that he had himself a little movie marathon or something because he is definitely like, uh, he's definitely homaging Sergio Leone with all these like close-ups. There's a ton of close-ups in this movie. Usually they're they're either of eyes, you know, close-up on Mm -hmm. the eyes, like the scene where Sharon Stone's first, you know, hanging out in the, in the, the bar just kind of watching everything go down when they bring court mm-hmm. in and stuff, all those mm-hmm. close-ups on her eyes. That's a very, very Sergio Leone type thing. Uh, but there's also a lot of um, close-ups of guns and stuff like that. Like a lot of cool close-ups of people loading their guns. And uh, he, he's using that, that style, even if it's, you know, might not have been what you would normally see in an American Western. Like those, those hyper stylized shots are very common in some of those spaghetti Westerns. So whether he was experienced with it or not, he definitely like did his homework. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for someone as well-versed in genre filmmaking as Sam Raimi is, I imagine it didn't take him long to be like, okay, I see X, Y, Z. Yep. Okay. Here we go. (laughs) Clint Eastwood once said uh, that Sergio Leone had, uh, this is a quote, had his own vision of what a Western should be. And that some of his ideas were truly crazy. And I think you could absolutely apply that to Sam Raimi, who time and time again has uh, over the over the films that we've we've discussed, he has filtered 
the like genres that he grew up on or older genres, whether it be a crime movie, a fantasy adventure, a horror film, whatever, through his own very unique vision. Uh, like he, oh, yeah. he'll, he'll, he'll take a genre, he'll take like a, the genre of a Harryhausen movie or a slapstick comedy, but he'll make it, he'll twist it until it becomes fully a Sam Raimi movie. You know, yeah, like, and I yeah. think that's I think that's a really cool skill that you don't see from a whole lot of directors. A lot of directors, are, you know, may have a very unique visual style, but they either never try to step outside of a certain type of film or their style doesn't necessarily translate to other genres. I, I kind of think of um, uh, Guy Ritchie in that like Guy Ritchie has a very unique visual style. If you watch Lock, Sock and Two Smoking Barrels or mm-hmm. or, or Snatch mm-hmm. or even uh, like even later movies like like uh what's the one that just came out wrath of man but then you watch like his king arthur and i'm like well guy guy richie's style doesn't really work for this kind of period movie like it just doesn't work for me uh yeah. i don't think it, I, what he did sherlock holmes right like the, the mm-hmm. Two, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and i don't think i don't think his style works very well in those movies either uh but sam raimi somehow his just maybe i just like his style better i don't know i mean i like guy richie uh yeah and, and Guy Ritchie does occasionally do movies that don't showcase his normal style, like Aladdin or you know, did not look like right. a Guy Ritchie movie at all. Um, <laughs> but Sam Raimi is unique in that. I really think I'm sure there are others. If I really racked my brain to think about some other directors who have done that, but they're few and far between. I think, I think the like, thing is, is like, you'd be disappointed if this movie didn't have like knowing that Sam Raimi is the director. I feel like that almost, whether he likes it or not, too, I know that he would love to be able to branch out. Of course, I mean we're gonna, you know, we're 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 gonna skip through it, but I mean he's gonna do things like you know, simple plan and stuff like that, where it's not a Sam Raimi style movie, what we think of. But right, like, you know, watching this movie, I would have been disappointed if there weren't some fun parts that I could point to to be like that's Sam Raimi, right? Exactly, because he might give us all these like. Leone-esque close-ups, but he also gives us shots like the one where the camera is looking through a hole in a gunfighter's skull, revealing his opponent through the wound. Like that is a 100% Sam Raimi shot. Or I I mentioned it earlier, but the shot, which a lot of people, when when people want to talk negatively about this movie, they bring this scene up, but I love it. But the shot of the hole in in, um, Gene Hackman's like chest where the the sun is shining through it and you see the shadow. Uh, oh, it's such it's, a cool shot. It's well, very, somebody, like, it's some very YouTube, Looney Tunes, but yeah, I some love YouTube it. video I was watching showed though. I think it was that one that that uh, I did. I, I it's been a while since I've seen it, but the Cohen brothers do like uh, Buster Scruggs, and yeah. uh, and that's that that shot is used in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Oh, is it? I've only watched yeah. that once when it first came out, but I I, I would like to revisit it. Yeah, so but I just thought that. that was interesting. I was like, that's huh. that's cool that they. They like I don't know when they were showing it on the thing I was watching. You were like, "Oh, yeah!" They totally went back and were like, "What did Sam Raimi do with a western?" Let's see that real quick. (laughs) That's fun. That's fun. Uh, Well, I mean, by this point in the mid '90s, westerns were you know they're an old genre. They've been around for decades, uh, seen often as old fashioned, and a lot of those old westerns do look and operate the same. Even the good ones, like I think, Unforgiven is a great movie. I think Tomb- I love Tombstone, one of my absolute favorites. I love Tombstone. I think it's a great movie. Oh yeah. But they do fantastic. they do still kind of look like westerns, like what you expect a western to look like. Mm-hmm. Uh and 
same or Sam Raimi, you know, he he's taking, you know, he's got his, his montages, his slow motion photography, his weird camera angles, his jump zooms and things like that that you don't normally see in this genre. He's adding all of those to a genre that is becoming stale mm-hmm. and manages to make it feel fresh, like something you like something new, something you haven't seen before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, with that said, I think it's time because we've referenced a lot of other Westerns, a lot of other movies in general. Uh, I think it's time to get to our further viewing segment here. What would you guys pair as a double feature with Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead? We'll start with you, Todd. Well, you know, I'm kind of kicking myself because you mentioned uh, the martial arts, the the kung fu tournament style. Because, mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, yeah, that's absolutely perfect. And, you know, that opens up a whole mess of other movies to, to pair this with. But, um, unfortunately, my brain didn't go there. I was thinking more along the lines of something else pretty specific. So uh, 2001, written by Gary Scott Thompson, Eric Bergquist, and David Ayer, directed by Rob Cohen. The original title is Redline. Do you guys have a guess? Rob Cohen, 2001. It's got to be Fast and the Furious. Fast and the Furious. You're absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> I did I not just, know it was originally called Redline. There's an anime that came out in like 2008 or nine called Redline. That's also about car racing. That is, I think we talked about during our Wachowski series and it is awesome. Yeah. Uh, but also me, I, what, what, what the fuck Todd is also my next. Yeah. Question. Yeah. I was going to say it's a bit, <laughs> it's a bit of a reach. I kind of, I was looking at this going, uh, you know, quick and the dead is a movie that knows exactly what it is. And I feel like, Fast and the Furious also kind of fits that. It, it's a lot of pretty people, a lot of fast cars, but there's also this kind of weird Romeo Juliet type thing. And there's the whole episode, you know, the whole family thing. But then with the reason I pair it with this is because I look at Paul Walker's character as kind of, he has this secret and he's coming in and trying to fit in with this group and do and and accomplish his goal and i just kind of saw these t- and i really did try i was like this is not this isn't this isn't a good double feature and i really looked around for other things and and again like i said i'm kicking myself that i didn't think of the kung fu thing well i think but that's a bit is, of a stretch Todd, but it's yeah, a bit of a yeah. stretch, but any movie with any movie with Vin Diesel does get an automatic pass. For me, I was so gonna say, I, I I speaking you of guys which, would dig the Vin, Di- Vin Diesel. Yeah, if you were to if you were to put Vin Diesel in any role in in the Quick and the Dead, the Quick oh. and the Dead, the Fast and the Furious. Hey, the the titles work well together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you were to cast Vin Diesel in any role in the Quick and the Dead, what role would it be? I, I think I, Vin Diesel could take either lead. Like because on one end I feel like he could be the silent killer, or he could he could pull off the Gene Hackman lines in his diesel voice. I kind of <laughs> like him. As, I kind of like him as Court the preacher. Yeah, okay. Because I, okay, I, I initially saw him as as uh, as scars, like this sort of big lumbering. Nah, you he's know, not a, not ugly. He's far too far too handsome. Well, I mean, you know, throw some yeah, prosthetics on there. Scars. He's already he's already I bald. Can, I can see court just because like, like in pitch black where he's like, a that's exactly hero. what, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. Was, was so pitch black. He's, he's a criminal, but also he's pitch. He's got pitch a, black, a heart also of feature, gold. Also featuring <laughs> Keith David. That's true. 
Yeah. Keith David's in a thousand <laughs> movies, though. So. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's not hard. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Gary? What's your further viewing on this? Oh, one? my God. I could go on forever about this. So I feel like I should start having a Todd pick. Uh, like a, <laughs> like one that just doesn't make any goddamn sense. Well, that you're at least just like, where the fuck did that come from? Um, and I actually have one for this, which is why I say that, because there's a movie that I actually secretly really love and have always loved since I worked at a video store and uh, still remember it fondly, but it's called Mean Guns and it stars Ice-T and Christopher Lambert. And, oh, but, nice. Yeah, but it's it's about like- Is it a Western? No, it's not a Western though, but it's like gangsters. Like they get locked in a building, like they get brought um, into like a place and they're like shut down in this like building under construction and they all have to like fight their way out, basically. Right. So it ends cool. up pitting uh, like it was direct I just looked it up and it was directed by Albert Pyun, who just passed away, unfortunately, like two weeks ago. Yeah. Uh he was the guy he he did um he he did. Uh, I mean, you probably best know him for his the Captain America movie, but he also did the the one you know the straight to video one. He did, but he did Nemesis and Cyborg. He did a lot of those like low budget sci fi exploitation movies. But this is one that I've never heard of. So what what what's the plot oh, there? Yeah, I mean the the movie is like uh, basically there's like uh, there's this group called the Syndicate, and there's like a hundred people is. that they've employed. <laughs> Uh, and that have in some way fucked them over. And so they lock them in this like prison or it's like some building under construction or a prison under, under construction. And, uh, and there's just like weapons planted throughout the building. And, uh, and you've got like that night to be the last, uh, last person living. Wow. <laughs> and so like they all have to like wow. try to kill each other so each okay. but but like all these different people have like their stories you know like ice okay. is like you know a street level gang member who just like you know happened to end up in this thing christopher lambert is like one of their hired hit men that tried to leave or something that they brought in mm. they're like no you don't get to leave now you're stuck in this building and you have to survive and like it's just uh it's just fun like everybody's like really good at one thing or something, you know? And so like, do nice. they get pitted face to face or like, Oh, now I got to fight this guy. And that's fun. I, yeah. I've never heard of that. It looks like it's on Amazon prime and Tubi right now though. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll have to watch that soon. Yeah. I just, episode. Remember, I, I just remember loving it, but uh, I mean, <laughs> the, the easy ones to go for or are, uh, and I don't mean that disrespectfully. You already mentioned like enter the dragon, but you mm -hmm. could do that with like blood sport. You could do yeah. it with uh blood sport would be a good one. Yeah. I mm. like the movie warrior, which has like Joel Edgerton and Tom mm -hmm. Hardy. Yeah. In it. Great. Movie. Like, oh yeah. 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 That movie's good. Uh, I'm back. It's like that. Jet Li's yeah. got fearless. These are all like like fighting Tur tournament tournament movies. movies yeah. Uh, if I had to pick a western one, though, the one I thought of is one of my favorite Clint Eastwood's Clint Eastwood ones is High Plains Drifter. Oh I've yeah, always loved that movie where they think they've killed him and he comes back to get revenge and he like paints the whole town red and calls yeah. it hell and like. Like there's like some really cool, unique characters in it. And he's like out to kill the the people that killed his family or whatever. And it's just, I don't know. I always loved that movie. So I thought nice. of that one. Yeah. No, I, I haven't seen the movie in years, but that is, a, that is a very good one. Uh, so that leaves me with, uh, let's, I mean, I would, you know, enter the dragon, like I mentioned earlier, I think would be a good one just because it's, it'd be cool to see the same sort of 
tournament structure twice in very different settings. But if we're going with like another Western, which, you know, I feel like if I'm watching The Quick and the Dead, if I'm going to do a double feature, it's probably going to be with another Western. We're just having Western night. It's Wednesday. We're having Western Wednesday at the Bishop household. Uh, and we are eating serving spaghetti. Spaghetti. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, obviously, any of those spaghetti Westerns would fit, you know, especially the Leone ones. I, I think. Um, I think the the good, the bad, and the ugly is generally considered the greatest. Although I've always had a soft spot for Fistful of Dollars, the first one that they made together. Oh yeah. But I'm all I'm my official choice is going to be one that came out. It came out a few years earlier, kind of at the end of the '80s, so kind of before this '90s uh, Western revival. But it's one that I always kind of lump in with those movies, and it is uh, about Billy the Kid. Movie about Billy the Kid, Young Guns. I was going to um, say, I, uh, there's only one one movie you talk about when you talk about yeah. Billy the Kid. Yeah, Young Guns. I mean, it's got another <laughs> star-studded cast. It's Emilio Estevez, Kiefer Sutherland, yeah. Lou Diamond Phillips, Charlie Sheen, Dermot Mulroney, uh, Terrence Stamps in there, Terry O'Quinn's in there, Jack Palance is in there, Tom Cruise Jeez. has a cameo. Like it is a uh, it's a hell of a, a cast, and I haven't seen it in years, but I remember really enjoying it. Not exactly a revisionist Western uh, or or doing anything, you know, particularly new with the genre, but other than having, like, the most 1988 cast of all time. <laughs> but, but you know what it is? Like, I almost picked that one, except I couldn't make the direct connection and not to jump in on you, but, like, I, I, I almost picked that one because it's cool. Because like, it's just, cool. It's that's just yeah. a cool feeling movie, and well, like, that's exactly, especially in 2022 to that's watch. Exactly it now. what I, kind of what I was thinking. Like plot wise, it's very different uh, th- than than the Quick and the Dead, but it just it feels like a western that was made in the late 80s. Just like mm. the Quick and the Dead feels like a western that was made in the mid 90s. You know, if, right. if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's and it has a sequel. I remember the sequel being pretty good too. The sequel, Young Guns Two came out. Uh, like a year or two later, I think, with most of the same cast. But uh, I, I, d- I haven't seen that one as much, although I think that, that one did have Christian Slater added to the cast, which is always a good addition. If we cast. found a reason to watch Young Guns, we 100% would have the same feeling we had watching The Quick of the Dead, where we're like, holy shit, this cast. Yeah, like, this right? is fun. <laughs> like, this yeah. movie is just fun to watch. Like, yeah. this, they, everybody in it's good. Yeah, I might just... watch it today. Actually, I was going to watch it last night, and I, I decided to watch The Quick and the Dead again for, instead. Uh, but I think it's on Paramount Plus right now, so I think I will probably be watching Young Guns this afternoon after we get done nice. recording. Now that we're talking nice. about it, that'll be fun. All right. So, uh, fun fact for this movie, I actually do have a few. Uh, this one feels obvious, but I'm just going to throw it in there because I was curious. The title, "The Quick and the Dead." comes from the King James translation translation of the Bible. First Peter chapter four, verse five, which admonishes the believer for behaving like pagans. Quote, who shall give account to him, Christ, that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? Oh, yeah. Man, somebody was taking some artistic license with the Bible on that, and they were <laughs> sure. like, I'm going yeah, to sure. show off a little bit. <laughs> yeah. The word quick is, it's, you know, it means living, the the living. And uh, mm. so, the, you know, mm. the movie title kind of works with. It's playing game. with that because you have to be quick to win a quick draw tournament. Yeah. Now, see, if they, if they had leaned into courts, 
story a little bit more. Mm, yeah. This like this would have been a like a really good card to have like right at the beginning before before the opening scenes and stuff oh, like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah that would have been that would have been cool. Uh the actual bar uh in the saloon, uh you could apparently still visit this. It's at Long Bar or Long Barn Ranch in Half Moon Bay, California. Hmm. You can still go check that out. Uh, one of the henchmen behind Gene Hackman, uh, I think you could tell what you see them both and you pay attention to them, but one of them is uh, Sharon Stone's brother, Michael. Uh, she oh. got him a little part there to play nice. the henchman. Uh, we mentioned this slightly earlier, but Bruce Campbell did have a cameo during a wedding scene in the movie, but it was cut. Uh, Campbell says uh, Sam Raimi uh, made like this wedding scene to give like Pat Hingle some more substantial stuff to do. Uh, it was never like a part of the movie, but they were trying to shoot it, but it ended up being on the uh, cutting room floor. He also like tried to put Bruce Campbell in like multiple other spots, but all of the <laughs> spots ended up on the cutting yeah, room we getting floor. getting cut. Yes. Yeah, so. What about do you have a fun fact about the Delta 88 in this one, Gary? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the Delta 88, I, I was looking for stuff about this. This is rumor and speculation. And Sam Raimi's just like laughed it off and been like, maybe. But supposedly he uh chopped the Delta 88 down to like at least pulled out the chassis of the Delta 88 and turned it into a wagon. And, yeah. and there's only one wagon. <laughs> like if you look in the movie, there's like during the explosions, like there is one wagon that like is sitting there and blows up and like flies towards the camera. <laughs> and uh, I, I was like, I bet, I bet that's it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Bruce Campbell says that in, in some of the interviews on Ar the Army of Darkness Blu-ray, he he mentions that that's where. That's where yeah. the Delta. Well, yeah, because somebody was like, "Well, except the Quick of the Dead, like you couldn't get it in there." And he was like, "No, he got it in the Quick of the Dead." Yeah, he apparently gets it in the Great and Powerful Oz as well somehow. Yeah, wow. crazy. Uh, also, uh, interesting thing I found like reading through stuff like the original ending for this movie they said didn't work. Like Sam Raimi never felt like he could get the actual ending to uh, with with that final fight and everything and the explosions and all that stuff to fix it. Mm. So uh, the studio brought in another writer to help him out to like round out the ending. And that writer's name, Joss Whedon. What? Hey! <laughs> wow. so, Hot off of Alien afternoon, 3. They sat down together and worked Alien out the Resurrection. Ending. Yeah. But, wow. Uh, huh. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, you know, there was like other little things like apparently the cast would get used to gunfighting. So they would like greet each other every day when they got there by like seeing who could draw the fastest when they saw each other. Yeah. And stuff nice. like that. But yeah, uh, Lance Hendrickson talks about that a little bit in some interviews I read where they, they would they were having a lot of fun. Yeah. But those are some fun facts about that. I got one little fun fact uh, that this kind of relates to your uh, your first one there about the title, The Quick and the Dead. Uh, so this is actually the third film that i found that uses the title the quick and the dead uh there are there are a lot of tv episodes that use that title like if you start looking up i mean oh yeah it's a really good title for one yeah. thing it's a great great <laughs> turn of phrase uh but it was the um the title of a 1973 novel by louis lamore uh louis lamore most famous i mean he wrote mostly westerns lonesome dove that's louis lamore uh, wow. So Louis L'Amour wrote a book in 1973 called The Quick and the Dead. And then in 1987, Sam Elliott starred in a made-for-HBO film that was based on Louis L'Amour's book. And then earlier than that, 
predating the novel even. So they must've gotten the title from the Bible, I guess, but there was a yeah. movie that came out in 1963, uh, world war II film called the quick and the dead, which starred Victor French and Mudge Barrett, AKA. Hey! <laughs> so that, that one's for you, Todd. Yay. Thank you. Oh, nice. <laughs> I thought that was really fun. All right. Now earlier, before we did the somebody needs a nap thing, uh, I read a few very negative reviews <laughs> about this film, <laughs> but I should mention that not not every critic hated it. I mean, there were some positive reviews. As I said, reviews were mixed, and it currently sits at 58% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is only two points short of being considered fresh. Now, granted, Rotten Tomatoes, not all of those are from the time of its release. Some of them are retroactive reviews. Uh, but a lot of the positive reviews that it got praised Raimi's distinct visual style. That's like the one thing that everyone seems to really like, not necessarily all the ones on the somebody needs a nap, but the uh, of the critical reviews of the time, a lot of them really did like what he was doing with it. But regardless, when the film was released, it didn't pack much of a punch at the box office, earning only 6.5 million its opening weekend. Uh, that put it at number two in the rankings, but again, it's, it's this is in February as well, which we've discussed. Uh, we discussed on Army of Darkness. Not the best time for the box office. Uh, it actually opened at number two, right behind Billy Madison, uh, the, oh. the the Adam Sandler movie. <laughs> well, that's uh, tough to beat. I know it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it fared much better in Europe and other international markets, but would still end up grossing just forty seven million dollars worldwide by the end of its run. Uh, domestically, here in the U.S., it grossed eighteen million dollars, which was more than Army of Darkness. Because Army of Darkness barely got released, uh, but less than Darkman. And with a budget of $35 million, it cost more to produce than both of those two films combined. Oof. And Raimi blamed himself and that signature visual style of his for the film's commercial failure. Later, uh, this is years later, but he said, I was very confused after I made that movie. For a number of years, I thought, I'm like a dinosaur. I couldn't change with the material. Uh, I, I think he's wrong. I, I think his visual style is what makes the movie unique and what makes it as good as it is. Uh, mm. I don't think he can blame. And plus, I, I mean, maybe people saw that visual style in the trailers, but most of the, any criticisms for, for his style in the film came after people had already seen it. So you know, I, I, I don't think I could blame that. I, I think it was bad luck or bad marketing. I, I think, uh, it, sorry if you're not ready for this, but like, I, I was just thinking about, when I read your notes about that, I was like, you know, I think during that time, the internet still wasn't the internet, you know? And right. so like, I think people like Sam Raimi, I, I'm not sure that they had the opportunity to really uh, understand the respect that their style could have. Like, I mean, right. obviously like Sharon Stone see the evil dead and stuff like that. So every once in a while you get lucky and you find somebody that's in the Hollywood that saw your thing. And then they're like, this is great. And they want to use you. But, but, but for somebody like, I don't know, like, I, I feel like I'm a pretty big movie nerd, but I remember even during that time, even working in video stores, I was just beginning to start to even kind of understand movie directors, right? And, like appreciate certain people. And mm. so I don't know. I, I I don't know that, you know, you, you obviously had Roger Ebert who's like pointing out Sam Raimi, but just the, the general public, I don't know that, that a director had access to understand that there were people that, that fully appreciated that style or that studios right. would have the understanding that people appreciated 
a certain person style that we're like Sam Raimi right now. You just say Sam Raimi and people know if yeah. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, a- after the film failed, it would be another four years before Raimi would direct another film. And he spent those subsequent years largely working in television. Uh, that allowed him to be, you know, go home at the end of the day to his wife and kids and have dinner at his dinner table. So he right. he worked in television for a long time. His first TV series was a show called American Gothic, which aired on CBS from 1995 to 1996. It starred Gary Cole, uh, who Raimi is going to use in his next film to great effect, I think. Uh, he also produced Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, and its spinoff Xena Warrior Princess, and Mantis, M-A-N-T-I-S, the acronym Mantis during that time yeah. period. Yeah. Dude, it, oh. Mantis is cool, he, right? Did, yeah, did like either the, of you the guys guy watch Mantis? Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was... Uh, Carl Lumbly? Carl Lumbly, uh, who I who I would later know uh from Alias, from JJ Abrams yes. Alias. He he had a, a big role on there, but he played the main like yeah. main character on there. Yeah. Right. I like I I always like to think because they are so similar, I always liked to think that Mantis and Darkman were in the same universe. That was yeah. my own headcanon, but like it it was a cool show. It just it breaks my heart that it was only like 22 episodes. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't long, but I mean, it's it's definitely got like Sam Raimi's style all over it. Oh, oh uh, yeah. Joe LaDuca yeah. did the music for it. And it was co-cre- it was co-created by Sam Hamm, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, wrote Burton's Batman in 1989. Yeah, there's <laughs> Batman reference number three, people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, also, I remember American Gothic, but I did not watch it. I was probably too young to watch it, but I remember being intrigued by like the commercials yeah. and stuff. My parents were really into it, I recall. Yeah, I remember it looking pretty cool. But he also used this time to reflect on his directing career, including that visual style, because, again, he felt like that was part of the failure of of, uh, The Quick and the Dead. I think he's being too hard on himself. But uh, along the way, though, he did kind of hone his skills of working with actors. And I think his next film, once he finally did return to, to filmmaking is a reflection of that that like goal to want to be more of an actor's director. Mm. So his follow-up to The Quick and the Dead was 1998's A Simple Plan, a movie based on a book of the same name by Scott B. Smith. Uh, and that film, I watched it this week because I hadn't seen it in a long time, and it contains none of Raimi's signature visual quirks. Uh, it instead focuses on the tension created by the story and the characters that drive it. It is by it is incredibly restrained uh, from a directing standpoint. Uh, even the score, the scores by Danny Elfman, it is incredibly restrained for a Danny Elfman score. I would never guess uh-huh. it was Danny Elfman doing it. Um, it's in fact, it's a lot more restrained than the book, which I, I've read. And the book gets incredibly violent in the end. Like it turns basically into like a slasher movie by wow. by the last act of the book. Uh, And the result is, in my opinion, one of the best and honestly, maybe the best pound for pound film that Raimi has ever made. Just from a pure storytelling standpoint, uh, it is uh, incredible. It it features powerhouse performances from Bill Paxton and especially Billy Bob Thornton, who I think gives one of the if not the absolute best performance of his career in that movie. It is he is absolutely incredible in it. And that was followed up in 1999 with For Love of the Game, a baseball drama starring Kevin Costner and Kelly Preston that received mixed reviews. I'm uh, excited to watch that movie. And, I, and I'm sorry, Jess, I meant to mention A Simple Plan is a great book, too. By it the is way, a great book. If you it haven't is. seen it. And, and also that guy wrote uh, The Ruins. The Ruins, right? yeah. 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 And I, 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 for some reason, got into a kick and read 
all that guy's stuff at one point. <laughs> I, th- I think that's what I did. I think that I read, uh, I think I read the ruins. I read the ruins when it first came out. This is a couple, a few years before the movie came out. I read the ruins because it just sounded cool. And then I Maybe went back it. and, and then I went back and read a simple plan. And I'm sure we were, the same guy. Uh, obviously we were friends at that time. So that's probably right. what happened. I just went yeah. back and read them. But, uh, and then I watched the movie because I was excited to see the movie. And honest to God, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I even knew it was Sam Raimi really. Like I wasn't paying that much attention and probably well, until it was on the screen in front of me that I was right. like, Oh, Sam Raimi. I mean, there's nothing that would indicate that it's a Sam Raimi movie from a visual standpoint, which does show his growth as a director. Like he, you know, I had that quote from him earlier where he said, you know, I couldn't change to fit the material. Well, he does in a simple plan because his his typical style would not work for that movie, I don't think. So he mm-hmm. was able to adapt visually what he was trying to put across for the sake of the story. And I think he does a great job with it. Uh, for the love of the game, another one doesn't show it really many many uh, visual quirks that you associate with Sam Raimi. Uh, it's a pretty boring movie, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and neither neither of them though neither a simple plan nor for the love of the game did very well at the box office. A simple plan became kind of a hit on on video, and it was it was uh, critically it is very well liked. For the love of the game is still probably one of the lowest rated Sam Raimi movies ever. Uh, his next film came the following year. So he's going three years in a row, 98, 99, 2000. He got back on that, that horse and like just went for it. Uh, next film was a supernatural thriller called The Gift, which was co-written by Raimi's Simple Plan star, Billy Bob Thornton. And it starred Kate Blanchett, uh, Keanu Reeves, Katie Holmes, Greg Kinnear, Hilary Swank, Giovanna Ribisi. So another star-studded cast. I have uh, never seen this movie, and the more I hear about it, the more I'm like, "What the fuck? Where was I?" You've never seen the gift? Movie? Oh, it's no, good. I don't think. Yeah. Oh wow, yeah. I literally I, I just really watched like the fun. gift with uh, with uh, Jason Bateman. And... Yeah, different movie. Also a good movie though. <laughs> it is a good movie. <laughs> That's a different but, one though. I just watched that one again. I saw that in the theaters, and we just picked it to watch. But not this, the gift. I've yeah, it's never good. Seen this movie. I mean, I like it. It's uh, you know, it's it's ten million dollars, so it's back to being kind of low budget territory for Sam Raimi. Um, and it did be, it did a modest box office numbers for a movie of its budget. It was considered successful. You know, and, mm. and it got uh, mixed reviews, but audiences seem to really dig it. I'm sure that star-studded cast helped them out a lot. Yeah, I um, looking at. Uh, I remember reading uh, an interview with Keanu Reeves. Uh, <laughs> I actually read the interview that was in Playboy. <laughs> wow, that sure well, I did sure not believe that, that at all. Sure, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but I actually read that interview with uh, Keanu Reeves that he did in the early 2000s, and he there's an interesting little chunk in there about working with Sam and Hillary Swank specifically on the gift. I I urge people to go read that interview because he reveals a little bit about Sam. He reveals a little bit about Hillary and the the mindset that it, he had to put on to play that abusive uh the abusive husband in that film and it's really fascinating how that all played out um i'll i'll make sure justin has a link if you want to yeah, include we'll throw it, it in, up the in the show notes, show notes. yeah yeah of but course it's a really great interview and uh yeah it's you can tell keanu's 
trying to be a little diplomatic about some things, but some of the yeah. stuff just comes off pretty funny, actually. That's fun. He's such a nice yeah. guy. He doesn't want to talk poorly of anyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, with each of these films, really starting with The Quick and the Dead, uh, you're hearing more and more recognizable names. He's working with big name actors, big stars. He had, for all intents and purposes, Sam Raimi has gone Hollywood, and he had to kind of learn to work within the system honing his visual style and learning to shoot films in a way that best fit the story instead of trying to force his style onto the film. Mm. And here's the thing. We're not going to talk about any of these movies. Uh, we're not doing episodes on any of these. We have our reasons. Uh, really, I, I think that they're worth seeing. I mean, the a Simple Plan and The Gift, I think, are worth seeing. For the love of the game, I think that is for Raimi completists only because, again, I don't think it's very good. Uh, there are two other Kevin Costner baseball movies that are much better if you want to watch those. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and this, and honestly, the stories behind their productions are not in, entirely, incredibly interesting. For, you can make an argument for A Simple Plan's story uh, just because it was, you know, you could talk about Scott B. Smith and things like that. But uh, they're, they're not really ones that would make very interesting episodes. And honestly, I cannot imagine dedicating two weeks of my life into researching for love of the game sorry but that's just the, that's the, the truth of it another thing we should talk about justin just really quickly too that i that i wanted to make sure we mentioned is is in 2000 um oh, when was it it was 2002 uh sam raimi also with robert rob tappert that we mentioned mm -hmm. uh they formed ghost house productions Right. So he also jumps into a lot of producing at this point. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I know we'll disagree on this, but I'm actually a fan of The Grudge. That was their first huge movie that they brought over from mm -hmm. Japan in 2004. Yeah. God, I forgot yeah. they uh, did that. I'm not and a huge they, fan of The Grudge. I know you're not. I know you're not. <laughs> and I actually really like The Grudge. And uh, and then they, they, of course, they did The Grudge 2. They did movies like Boogeyman, The Messengers, 30 Days of Night. Uh mm -hmm. But uh, nice. that's all going to lead into where we're going. But uh, they're, they're, Sam Raimi did get into, weirdly, you know, considering what we've talked about, like he, he got into producing and made Ghost House Productions. So he's he is the horror guy, whether he wants to be or not. Like he helps bring a lot right. more horror. And around. I think he knows that, you know, I, I think he he realizes that he he uh, he's not ashamed of being a horror guy, but he does know that his name is well associated with it. So it's always going to be part of his career. Um, so as as the series progresses, we are also not going to be talking about Sam Raimi's follow-up to The Gift quite yet. Uh, I'm sure all of you are aware uh, that... Somebody literally asked me last night. <laughs> yeah, if we're going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sure everyone's aware that his follow-up to The Gift is 2002's Spider-Man, uh, a film that changed the world of blockbuster filmmaking in fundamental ways. Uh, but rest assured, we will be talking about Spider-Man. We plan on doing it uh, this coming summer. So we will be getting to it very soon. Uh, but we're leaving those for their own series because it, we just think that they kind of, they, des they deserve their own kind of series. We like to break up these uh, series on director's career a little bit, honestly, because we get so immersed in researching these careers that we can, there's, there is the threat of getting burned out and we love Sam Raimi and don't want to get burned right. out on him. So, so we want to I, I mean, shout out, shout out to friend and listener, Justin Vance, who I love you, brother. Uh, last night, uh, at a Christmas thing, uh, saw him for the first time in forever. And he was like, Oh, and it, it 
And in front of all these people, which makes you feel really good, he's like, on your podcast, you talked about this. And you're kind of <laughs> like, did I? Did what? I say that? <laughs> what? <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> you're like, thank you for listening. And he's like, also, you mentioned this. You you had a really good discussion about this. And I'm like, fuck. Man, I wish <laughs> I remembered I? that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, but, but he also was very interesting. He's like, are you guys doing spider-man like just the first one are you gonna do the other two like it would be cool to hear you guys talk about sam raimi's spider-man movies and uh i was like we are going to talk about sam raimi's spider-man movies just not yet yeah we're taking right. a little break from sam raimi yeah. in the meantime uh but we're, we're like talk- just just for for the listeners we are three very different people i mean that's part of what makes this show work we come th- we come at these movies with three very distinct perspectives. Don't think that we just don't care about the Spider-Man movies. Like <laughs> yeah. there, there were, there were multiple discussions about do we, don't we? And this was not the first issue that we've had a discussion of like, okay, do we, don't we, what are we doing next? How are we going to structure this? Like we care very much about, these movies, these filmmakers, this show, and conveying this story that Justin has very carefully and meticulously put together. So trust us, we 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 know what we're doing. Uh, Justin does a <laughs> phenomenal job putting it to, putting it all together. Trust us, we we will get to those things. We we want to cover them as much as you want to hear us cover them. <laughs> Listen, I'd love to have time to do. I, I'd love for us to be able to do a, a, a di- an episode a week, but we all have yeah. jobs and families and things that prevent us from doing that. When when these right. episodes are as research heavy as they oh, are. Oh yeah, the subject right. came up at this thing I was at where people were like, "Oh, you guys should do Doctor Strange," and I was like, "We've had that discussion, and uh-huh. yeah, it's going to be tough <laughs> without doing ten years of Marvel movies, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah." yeah. <laughs> Uh, and when we talk about Spider-Man, we'll, we'll, we're going to talk about all three of them. Uh, we're going to get into all the gritty details on that franchise. Uh, and, but as you probably already know, Sam Raimi's experience on the, especially the third Spider-Man film, wasn't great. Uh, and after that film, he wanted to get back to his roots. He wanted to do something that did not need to be a blockbuster to be successful. It didn't need to make a billion dollars at the box office. He wanted to do something more low budget, something simpler, something smaller. Uh, kind of like getting back to those types of movies he was making in out in the woods with a 16 millimeter camera, you know, only now he's got a little bit more budget. So on our next episode, which will be the final episode in the series, Sam Raimi, the entertainer, that's going to act as sort of, I, I've been referring to it as sort of a coda on the series. Cause we are doing a time jump. We're doing a little like, like lost. We're just jumping a few years in the future. You know, we're doing a little time jump. Uh, and we're going to talk about the film that got Sam Raimi that was back Todd to coming. his. Yeah, that's the noise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about Sam Raimi getting back to his over-the-top exploitation-style roots, going back to where he started with the horror genre with a film that he had actually written this film before he had ever been attached to Spider-Man at all. Uh, and it is a film I think that showcases really everything we'd love about Raimi as a filmmaker and as an entertainer. And it will serve as the perfect exclamation point at the end of the series. Uh, I'm sure most of you, if you're familiar with Sam Raimi's career, have guessed what we're talking about. It's Raimi's 2009 Spooka Blast extravaganza, Drag Me to Hell. Very easy to find. 
uh, streaming, go, you know, hit up Just Watch or hit up our website. Uh, you'll, you'll find it streaming. Uh, it's also Shout Factory's got an outstanding Blu-ray of it that came out a while back. So that's going to be an easy one for you to watch along with us. And then we will discuss it on our next episode. The beauty part of this is that for all the people that asked about Spider-Man or Doctor Strange or anything that Sam Raimi has done, almost like nine out of 10 people, I said, no, but we are going to do Drag Me to Hell. I heard, oh yeah, I've not seen that one. I didn't see Drag Me to Hell. And I'm well, like, you have to watch Drag Me to Hell. You should. If you Drag like Me is... to Hell is a freaking blast. Yeah. And you a need spooka to blast. see Drag Me to Hell. It is a spooka <laughs> blast. And I'm like, it arguably is one of, if not my favorite Sam Raimi movies. It's honestly. way up there. It is it's, way up there. It's really, really good. Yeah. And everybody should see it. And so if if that is what we can bring to the table for Sam Raimi, I'm I'm for it. Watch Drag Me to Hell. Yeah, watch it. It is, it is great. Is... Absolutely. And not a lot of people saw it in the theater, which we will also talk about on our next episode. So if you have and not Allison seen Alison Lohman Hell, is in that movie, by the way. And yeah. I, I, I can't wait to dive into this because I don't know what the hell happened. To Where that does she girl. go? Where does she go? She's fan <laughs> freaking tastic in this yeah. movie. Yeah. And she's in nothing else. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm interested to dive into this. I haven't even done the research. I just know. I looked for her and I'm like, oh yeah, Drag Me to Hell was about the last thing that she did. So mm-hmm. we're going to find out what happened Hopefully. to Allison Lobed because we'll you're going to watch Drag Me to Hell and you're going to be like, I'm in love with this girl. She's great. And she's, she's what Bruce, like she's, she's like, she could have been the next Bruce Campbell. Right. Like, yeah. She, she just, uh, she's fantastic. She is. So join us on that episode in the meantime where can you gentlemen be found on the internet for our listeners to follow i'm at this is gary horde on all of the things i have a wrestling podcast is at tipw show you can also follow my exploits of the national wrestling alliance at nwa and I am still raising money for uh, my friend, Alyssa Fowler. We had the uh, charity comedy show. It was a really nice uh, little turnout. Uh, the Coffee Underground was very nice to donate the space. And we had about 20, 25 people show up. It was a nice little intimate show. Uh, the microphone ended up going out on us. So we just played it acapella. And so it was a lot of fun. Uh but we are still raising money for her. She uh, is in need of funds for cancer treatments for uh, herself. She actually just had brain surgery uh, on some of her, uh, on you know what she's got going on. Uh, her daughter is on some new meds. So we are still uh, gathering up funds. We've got the GoFundMe that is currently running. And there is a link to that uh, we will share in the show notes. Uh, please, I know things are tight around the holidays, but if, you can spare anything. It's going to a good cause. Uh, and these folks really deserve it. Please, please help us out. I I'm going to jump in here really quick. I, 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 this was unplanned, so I'm sorry, but I do want to also mention another charity. If you guys, uh, have time to check it out, it's out of Jacksonville, Florida. It's called the love alive charity, uh, love dash alive.org. It's run by a, a friend of mine. His name is Elijah Burke. Uh, also known as the Pope. Oh, uh, yeah. 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 And uh, that guy is uh, he's he's been a wrestler for 
a lot of years, but for about 11 years, he's run this charity out of Jacksonville, Florida that feeds the homeless during the holidays, especially. Nice. And, uh, and that guy, like if you follow him on, uh, I think on Instagram and Twitter, he's duh black Pope. Uh, you can find him there, but, uh, he went live on Instagram, uh, the night he broke my heart like showing me the people around Jacksonville, Florida that were desperate for food and shelter. And uh, that guy works his ass off to try to make sure the people in his community, which is huge, are fed and taken care of. Uh, he did it at Thanksgiving. He's going to be doing the same thing coming up in Christmas. So if you guys uh, feel led to do so, love-alive.org, uh, you could donate right on the, the first page there. Any any amount helps just to, cool. to make sure Very somebody cool. has a meal. Looks like they're doing a charity wrestling show in, in Jacksonville come January too, with a bunch of NWA folks. Coming oh yeah. To... Yeah. Yeah. They do the Duval brawl, yeah. uh, which is a, a big thing. So yeah, yeah, that's a, okay. they Pope Pope's a good dude. And uh, he, he busts his ass to help other people. That's awesome. I love that. I, uh, I don't have a charity to give you guys, uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, just don't give your money to the Salvation Army because they're homophobic and suck. Well, <laughs> I guess I am at Justin underscore Bishop is all I have to say. Uh, follow me on Twitter and Letterbox. Follow the show at Cinema Shock, uh, Cinema underscore Shock I get, uh, on Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we are at cinemashock.net. You can find all of our shows there. You can find links to our merch, our Discord, all that good stuff. Uh, of course, the best way, though, for you to support the show is to just share it with your friends uh, get, leave us a good review if it's somewhere like uh apple podcast that gets us in front of more people and just if you know somebody who's into these kind of movies who's into film history uh send them a link that's honestly the best thing you can do to support the show that's all i've got for this week fellas until next time may the wings of liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other i'm confused all i hear from you spineless cowards it's how poor you are, how you can't afford my taxes, my protection. Yet somehow you managed to find the money to hire Johnny to kill me. Where are all these keys coming from? What am I to think? If you got so much to spare, I'm just going to have to take some more off you. Because clearly you haven't gotten the message. This is my town. If you live to see the dawn, it's because I allow it. I'm in charge of everything. I decide who lives and who dies. Johnny's dead. Old news. Well done. Well done. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get the... I can't get the tone, but I... I, I was trying to get the... <laughs>